today's show. Hey, Bob, nice to meet you. Howard catches up with comedy writer, director, and actor, Bob Odenkirk. There was this contingent of hippies who used to hang out on the bridge down by the river. And I thought, what about a motivational speaker who uses himself as like, I'm a piece of shit. <laughs> I went home that night, and I'll never forget sitting there with a yellow legal pad and just writing out. Well, you'll have plenty of time to live in a van down by the river when you're living in a van down by the river. I was um, in my car a lot uh, this weekend, and I got to hear some of our show, and we're very entertaining. I approve of this show. I think it's a good show. You like the show? You would listen? I like the show. Yeah, you were good. I was great. <laughs> I was just good. <laughs> no, you were great. I mean, it was really a, a nice repartee between the two of us and uh, various bits and uh, discussions. Excellent show. I couldn't turn it off, actually. And I, um, you know, when people call us, Robin, and they go, Howard, Robin, you got us through a lot of hard times. And I was like, I was having a hard time this weekend, and uh-huh. the show got me through it. Wow. Excellent. You're making that call. Robin, would you do me a favor and ask me what is the best radio show you ever heard? Just casually ask me. Okay. Thank you. You know, I was thinking the other day, what's the best radio show you've ever heard? Funny you should ask. I just heard the best show ever. Really? What was it? The the Howard Stern Show. (laughs) It was really good. (laughs) <laughs> a lot of lot of uh, funny voices and people stopping by. It was just really good. Lots going on. You like yeah. it? I don't want to start the show without uh, commenting on one of the most horrible, atrocious, never, uh, never want to speak about stories in the news, but I have to because it's such a horror that the truth came out. Uh, Betty White, they're saying, was a cunt when she was alive. Did you what? read this? Yes. No. Yes, yes. I didn't see Betty White was a cunt as a big headline. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's Wouldn't a war have been going great on. great the Post had that uh, in those the headline. big block letters? Well, now that she's dead, the truth is out. Betty White was a cunt. Uh, Joel, A man named Joel Thurm, who was the casting director for the legendary TV show that I never watched, The Golden Girls. Uh-huh. And he was on a podcast where everybody says everything. Uh, This podcast is called The Originals. And he said that both B. Arthur and Rue McClanahan called Betty White a cunt. Uh, Cunt! And he would know. And here it is. I have the the tape. (laughs) Let's listen. I mean, literally, B. Arthur, who I cast in something else later on, just said, oh, she's a fucking cunt. Using the using that word, but B. Is, Arthur called Betty White a, a c yeah, word. Yeah, she called her the c word. I mean, I heard that with my own ears. And by the way, so did Rue McClanahan. <laughs> and and what what she would do, for instance, was and this I remember clearly. Estelle Getty was having. She began to have increasing problems with memorizing lines, and she would write the lines on her on her hand. And B and and if she went up, Betty White would make fun of her in front of the live audience. You know that may seem like a minor transgression, but it really does get to you. There it is, Robin. Wow, cunt! The secret to living <laughs> cunt. a long life is being a cunt. <laughs> Thank I'm you for being a cunt. Forever. <laughs> You're a dude. 
you go. Big production <laughs> number right here. I mean, that's it? That's it. <laughs> It's going to be a very challenging show today. I have tremendous technical problems I've been trying to work out all morning. But Oh. Yeah, it's going to be really hard. Yeah. Thank you for being a cunt. There you go. All right. All right. Big build up to that. Uh, yes. Do you think that really qualifies as a major headline that you're going to... those? You know, that incident, or maybe it was a series of incidents, or maybe Betty thought she was helping the audience get over what was going on in their taping, and that was the best she could do. I don't know that that should mark her entire life. Well, I, I just think sometimes it's a, it's a little sad or unfair that after the person dies, it comes out that they're a cunt. But uh, because even B. Arthur and Rue McClanahan can't corroborate this story. Right. Right. But I have a feeling it's true because uh, I trust Joel Thurm. You know what I mean? <laughs> Whoever that Cunty. is. But um, some people think I should have opened with the story about Ukraine. But uh, I don't know. I thought long and hard about it. Betty White being a cunt. Bigger and, and, headline, uh, Betty White is a cunt. <laughs> yeah, and Come in on. the similar story that surprised no one, evidently Jerry Lewis was a real cunt. Did you read Ooh, that story? Oh, I was reading that weekend? story. Yeah, that yeah. was, oh my God. It, there was a, every woman in Hollywood apparently, uh, Jerry uh, harassed. <laughs> yeah, like Jerry's move was like, he, you know, when Jerry became a movie star, and it just seems to me Jerry you know, was the buffoon, the clown, the this, the that. So in his personal life, he wanted things his way, as most narcissists want. And he, like Vladimir Putin. So uh, Jerry would be on the set, and then he'd hire the hot actress for his co-star, and then he'd have them march in, check out their outfits, and then close, lock the door, and then kind of start fingering them. I, I got the impression they were he was fingering the girls. Well, he um, exposed himself, you know, yeah, like he'd take out his little weenie or whatever it was. He, I don't know whether he had a monster off. or a, you <laughs> know, that a, big one? a dot. <laughs> I think guys who beat off in front of women probably have a pretty big penis. I uh, That's my guess. I know uh, I keep mine in my pants at all times, unless absolutely necessary to take out. But, um, yeah, so Jerry would lock the door, whip out his dick. Oh, there's a lot of you know demand sex, you know, and if you yeah. didn't give him sex, he would like try to make you quit. You know, if you had a contract to work on his movie, then he right. would make it so uncomfortable for you that you know you'd want to quit. But you know, one Let of the women who tells the story, she never quit. She she worked through the whole thing where he made the entire crew and cast not speak to her unless they were acting. Yeah, Jerry treated women. Yeah. I was going to say he wouldn't rehearse with her. He would um, only his stand in. You know, she he wouldn't walk onto the set until it was time to actually act. <laughs> yeah, unless she gave him sex. Jerry treated women like the cum hat, the <laughs> Kansas City Chiefs hat. But I thought maybe there'd be a headline that said the nutting professor instead of the nutty. <laughs> but. In any well, case, I, knew I never liked Jerry. I never liked him in his movies. I never liked him anywhere. Yeah, I. It didn't surprise me that Jerry was a cunt, but um, 
but I didn't know he was that bad. Which, which, but it didn't surprise me, you know. When I read that, I was like, my wife sent me the article, and I was like, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. But Jerry did, uh, when I was on America's Got Talent, he did send me a note saying how wonderful I was, which I still have. Uh, he liked me on, he didn't, I guess he didn't like me on the radio, but he liked me on America's Got Talent. Well, which is I almost, remember... which by the way is a bigger insult than anything. Right. <laughs> Don't tell me you like me on that shit. Yeah, because that was when you weren't being yourself. That's what you right. like. People who aren't themselves. Right. Because I wonder if you're a cunt in real life. <laughs> but but um, uh, I remember we were at a Friars roast. Yeah. And Jerry was one of the last people to perform at that particular roast. And we were walking out as he was being introduced and he was all he almost begged you to stay and listen to him. He kept saying, Howard, how he was yelling at you across. Really? The Do you remember that? No, I, that's yeah, something yeah. I should remember. Yeah. He was yelling, Howard, Howard, please stay. Did I stay? No. Not <laughs> for a second. As soon as he started talking, you kept walking. That must have been a horribly embarrassing moment in front of the entire Friars Club audience. I'm walking out on Jerry Lewis, and uh, he's begging me to stay, and I walk out. I mean, how do I not remember that? Well, what was interesting to me was, like, why would he call attention? You know, it was like nobody would have noticed that, but because hmm. he made a big deal about it, now he was publicly humiliated. Right. Wow. Put me in an awkward position to be walking out on Jerry Lewis. But I think I remember, I think what you're talking about, was he like going on and on and on and it wasn't really funny? We didn't even hear like his first joke. We were, we were oh. tired of the whole thing because those things used to drag on and on and on. Right. And right, so you right, had had right. enough and you were like, I'm getting out of here. It wasn't a particular thing about Jerry that made you start to walk. But you had had so much of enough, you weren't stopping and sitting and listening to Jerry's set. Yeah, well, I, you're right. From what I remember, I went to one of those rows or two of them at the most. My agent was in the um, Friars, Friars Club, and he would invite us. He had a great table. And so I'd go, but I didn't really want to go to the Friar Club roasts. Uh, but... My agent was like, come on, it'll be fun. And I'm like, oh, God, you know, what's with me? I don't want to do anything show business. I don't ever want to go to anything. Maybe it'd be fun to sort of go. And it was so important to my agent. Like, he he had that table, and I think he just wanted us there. And so I went, and I, I could remember sitting at one of them, thinking to myself, my life, the hours <laughs> of my life are going through that little hourglass, and the sand is going through rapidly, and I... Just remember thinking, oh, when can I get out of here? I hate jokes, pretty much. Like jokes, like setups and jokes. I'm not a big fan of that. Like listening to it. Um, I'm very particular. And I was tired probably from doing the radio show that day. And so I kept saying, I want to go, I want to go. And then my agent finally probably had enough of me and said, okay, go, go. As soon <laughs> as someone finishes. <laughs> yeah, as soon as someone finishes, get up and quickly scurry out like a rat. And that's but what we I did. we were right up there at the front. It was hard to scurry. <laughs> yeah. And I, and somehow Jerry magically got, they, they called him up real quick because I guess things were going long and then he, I was stuck, I guess. I kind of vaguely remember it now that you're talking about it. And I guess I was stuck and he goes, geez, I really don't remember it, but it must have been horrible. But, you know, 
most things in my life are horrible, so <laughs> it's good to know. <laughs> yeah. Well, now you know he deserved it. You walked out. <laughs> but meanwhile, this Betty, getting back to Betty White, what I, I yeah. guess the reason I, I make such a big deal about it is here's somebody Come so on. beloved, somebody who was so, you know, appreciated by so many people. And it shows you somebody somewhere is always a cunt, no matter how great. Like Mother Teresa, she must have been a cunt to somebody, you know? It's just the way it goes. But um, there you go. That's That was the headline, that Eddie White was a cunt. And, um, yeah, and now America's sweetheart was a cunt. Because from what I remember, at the time... That woman um, on the Golden Girls had like the onset of Alzheimer's and couldn't remember. Estelle Getty couldn't remember her lines or something. And <laughs> Betty White yelled at her. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty, pretty shitty. Well, maybe Estelle um, Getty wouldn't remember that either. <laughs> maybe she thought she could get away with it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I don't know. Well, I, um, I know that Betty White did a lot for for animals. She was a real animal lover. Always had pets, and right. uh, yeah, she she did good stuff too. There you go. Yeah, she uh, she mercy fucked uh, Alan Ludden, the host of the Password Show. That's pretty nice of her. Yeah, sure, really. She donated sure he her liked vagina. It. Right. How many girls wanted to fuck Alan Ludden, the host of Password? When I was a boy, I, I, I was like, she fucks him? Okay. All right. <laughs> That's a nice woman. Uh, it's funny. A lot of shit comes out, but the Jerry Lewis article was the best. I was always kind of obsessed with Jerry. Uh, but I've as I've gotten older, I've come to appreciate his early movies. You know, the physical comedy he did was pretty impressive. And I so, only liked him when he was with Dean Martin because what was funny to me was Dean Martin's takes when Jerry uh, was doing all that stuff. There you go. Robin says Dean Martin was the, the, the winner. He was the real brains behind the operation. No, That's right. Really. I know Jerry did some great things, but I never liked him as an actor. I was, whenever he did one of those roles where he was a, he was a cunt, I thought he was very good at that. Cunt. Well, anyway, I want to mention uh, a bunch of things before Bob Odenkirk gets in here at 9 o'clock. So uh, I want to say that, uh, of course, like everyone else, that fucking moron Vladimir Putin, I do want to make a few comments about Ukraine. I mean, the obvious stuff. Uh, I hate the Soviet Union. I hate the communist regime. I always hated communism. Because it always turns into an autocratic situation, like in China, where they cut off your freedoms. I hate the um, I hate the fact that I don't know what I used to love the Republicans and their stance was firmly anti-communist, firmly anti you know pro-capitalist, anti-communist, and and certainly a staunch defender of free people and free elections. Um, I voted for many Republicans. I don't see how I'll ever get back to that. Um, They've just totally disappointed me in their support of Vladimir Putin. The praise they heap on him, Trump's praise of Vladimir Putin. This guy's a fucking animal. And he I wish he was dead like I wish Hitler was dead. I can't imagine the horror of the life of the Ukrainian people. They're living in a country. They decided to have free elections. They're trying to move toward freedom. 
Not their entire society wants to move toward freedom. Some of them want to stay tied to Russia, whatever. But they're acting out in some free way. And this scumbag who has more money than anybody, who has more power than anybody, who enslaves an entire country, who uh, uh, will kill you if you're a journalist, will kill you if you speak out against him, who's got everything a man could want if you're truly a megalomaniac, and he didn't have enough. This hunger goes back, again, I'm going to speak like a psychiatrist, it goes back to not being loved as a child. He is a little boy who says, everything in this world is for me, and I'm going to gobble it all up for myself. That's all that's going on here. That's what that's what's happening. We have a guy who feels like he's never full. He wants more and more. If he had a brother, he'd say to his brother, I want to kill you because I want mommy's love. There's so little love to go around. I want mommy's love. And so with the force, the mighty force of the Russian military, the nuclear uh, armaments that they have, he is now going to impose his will on this country of Ukraine. And he has already caused death. And I feel bad for the Russian soldiers because they're probably scared shitless of this guy. I wish they would take up arms, turn around, leave Ukraine and march right to Vladimir Putin's house and shoot him. Because he is an enemy of humanity. He is a worthless human being. And I wish uh, Republicans and Democrats would get together with that message. And support our president, who is trying to impose sanctions and and uh, play hardball. It's time for this country to at least have a unified message about democracy and freedom. I'm sick and tired of the fucking nightmare that's going on with people defending Vladimir Putin. I never thought I'd live long enough to see it. The well, this is, is what shit. happens when our country becomes divided. It becomes weak. Yeah. And no matter what we say, people are like, yeah, look at those idiots over there. You don't have to listen to them anymore. The man is a human stain. He's a stain. I don't care how much power he has. Don't praise him. Don't say what a genius he is. He's not a genius. He's not a genius. He's a thug. He's a thug. He's a, he's a, a bully. Uh, he rides shirtless to show people his body, and it's not even that good. I mean, think about how the absurdity of that. You ever see guys running? I, I used to run a lot. I take and I see guys with their shirt off, and I go, "Are they kidding me?" Their titties are flopping. Right? Yeah, their titties are flopping, and right, you see guys titties. with flopping yes. titties and titties. Vladimir Putin is a monster. Make no mistake about it. And I have never seen so much bravery as I've seen from the Ukrainian from the president. Ukrainian people. Yes, and the Ukrainian people and the way they're fighting back is just remarkable, and. um I'm glad they're imposing sanctions because the only ones who will get to this guy, uh, Putin, are these oligarchs who make tons of money with him. And if the ruble continues to crash and uh, enough pressure is put on this guy, maybe he'll back off. I doubt it, but maybe he'll back off. He's a monster. Make no mistake about it. Yeah, he wouldn't he, care if the Russian people have to starve in order for him no. to have his way. It, it wouldn't bother him how much pain the regular um russians have to endure for him to have his way for his dream and yeah. it's uh it's just sad because you know i was uh sitting at home with my wife uh, my daughter was over and we we're you know we we're uh 
sitting there with my daughter and her fiance, and we're having lunch and having a nice lunch. And I, I'm sitting there going, oh, my God. There are people now having to leave their homes. Their children are being killed. Their homes are being bombed. We're sitting here having lunch. And that's going on on the same planet because of one madman, one greedy fucking madman. That's the only way to see it. If you see it some other way, there's something horribly wrong with you. There is no reason this guy needs more power. He's got... uh or more uh, land or more resources. He's yeah. got plenty. But uh, evidently, since COVID, he's completely sequestered himself, this madman. And uh, he's getting more and more insane. And uh, President Zelensky is standing up to uh, him and staying in the country and not fleeing. And boy, oh, boy, there's some bravery going on out there. And it just really pains me because... Yeah, I think the mayor... I, I don't know if he's the mayor of Kiev or one of the other country, uh, other uh, cities... In the country where, you know, the Russians have, uh, in, you know, made their presence known. But, uh, Vladimir Kuch, uh, Klitschko, who is a professional boxer, is the mayor. Wow. And he's in there with a hard hat on and, you know, the military outfit. They're all fighting. Yeah. Great people. It's a shame they have to do this. People are coming back and saying, I couldn't sleep. I'm coming back so I can fight too. And they yeah. were handing out guns to average citizens like we all have to fight. Yeah, I know we're uh, loading up that country with all kinds of uh, anti-aircraft missiles, uh, you know, those those uh, so, they, so that helicopters can't fly over. They're putting in, um, you know, a lot of arms are being channeled into the country. To try and to bravo to Elon Musk, you know, because the Russians would like to block all communication, you know, like they'd like to cut them off to the outside world. And the president asked Elon Musk personally, please uh, provide your satellite network so we can have Internet. And Elon Musk is delivering. According to the Daily Mail, they reported that the Ukraine uh, was, was saying that Russia had 5,300 casualties so far. Yeah. Which uh, means they ain't having an easy time of it. And I'm sure these Russian soldiers are sitting there going, why are we here again? What, what are we doing? They, you know, they did probably. a report on one guy. He called his mom back in Russia and said, we thought we were going to a a uh, practice, you know, like one of those exercises where they do that they play war. He said, I don't know how we got here. He's in Ukraine. He's like, I don't know how we got here. We were supposed to be doing a military exercise. <laughs> wow. Well, maybe that's what he told everyone. You know, hey, don't yeah. just tell these guys we're having a military exercise. Um, anyway, you know, what are you going to say? It's weird. I put on right before I went to bed, I was watching the E red carpet coverage of the SAG Awards and it was a shitty optic. I mean, with all these people dying. But I mean, look, you could take it two ways. You could say people want a distraction. But I don't know. It was weird seeing celebrities talking about their outfits. <clears throat> well, Laverne Cox. Yeah. Laverne Cox is a very intense uh, woman, she's uh, interviewing people, and uh, I don't know. She had a lot of questions written down on cards and things. And every time a woman or man would come up, she go, "What story are you trying to tell us with your outfit?" And God, I never looked at clothing that way. What story are you trying to tell us with your outfit? Well, you and are I trying mean, to tell a story with your outfit. 
No, you're not. You're trying to say, Lizard, uh, my titties that's look nice in this outfit. No, that's, that's, yeah, but nobody said that. Nobody knew what the fuck she was talking titties. about. I'm very excited. <laughs> What's, what is the story you're telling with that outfit? I'm, I don't know. I, I guess I just put it. She was all over. Now, okay, so you look stunning. What story are you telling us with this gorgeous ensemble that you're wearing tonight? You were so good in the show. Now, I have. I would be remiss if I did not comment on how stunning you look tonight. What is the story you're telling us with this incredible look tonight? Oh, my God. I, you just look incredible. Girl, you look stunning. You look stunning. I heard you're wearing Vuitton. Am I correct? Vuitton, yes. And what is the story you wanted to tell us with this look tonight? So speaking of makeup, we have to talk a little bit about fashion. What is the story you're telling us with this look tonight? This is uh, Gucci, of course. The movie's Gucci, so I found it very appropriate. Girl, you look insanely amazing. I love the I love the hair. What story are you telling us with this incredible ensemble tonight? Well, you know, it's vintage. And now, what is the story you're telling us, Mr. Smith, with this? I love the um, double-breasted vest. Am I, yeah, you know. I guess she rehearsed that question because she kept asking everybody, what is the story you're telling us? And that would kill, like, half the interview, at least take up some would, time. Uh, what I'm wondering is if E had a big, con- you know, like, conference about how do we ask about their outfit without asking about their outfit. Oh. <laughs> What is the story you're telling me? I was <laughs> missing. Remember, uh, they got into trouble with who are you wearing? Oh, oh, did they? Yeah, yeah. Everybody started objecting to who are you wearing. Oh, okay. Wonder why. What do I know? I have no idea what was going on at that time. But now it's like, what's the story? Yeah, I kept framing the whole Ukraine situation. Like, I was laying in bed watching this with my wife, and I go, we're laying in bed watching people talking about their outfits, and somewhere someone is fleeing their home while there's bombing going on. I go, Or in a bomb shelter or already having lost someone. It seems absurd, but what am I going to do about it? I'm laying in bed, and I'm watching this. Well, there's a lot that's going on now, and when I watch Saturday Night Live poke fun at it, I'm like, we're we're fiddling while Rome burns. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty bad. The guy from uh, Procol Harum died. The guy who wrote this song sings it. I love this song so much. Coming at you, WNBC. We've got some Procol Harum for you. It's a two for Tuesday. Mr. Gary Brooker, 76 years old, died of cancer. And we celebrate his life. With Johnny Dark today giving away a tissue box, it's WNBC. We skip the line. Fuck yeah, of course. How dare you? You act like I'm not a professional over there. Twenty seven past seven o'clock in the morning. I still got it. Hey now. The song sold over ten million copies. Those were the days when you could make a lot of money selling a song. A single song. Lest anyone think I hit the post in that song without practice, I practiced all weekend with my WNBC. WNBC. Bob Odenkirk coming on today. I was reading his book, and he was talking about when he worked at Saturday Night Live. He was shocked. How that building looked like at a like a an insurance company office, like, and I went. He he reminded me. Many nights I would sit at NBC. I was on from three to seven, and then after everyone home, I would go. I would go back to my office to write stuff for the next day's show, with Fred. 
And um, I'm sitting there and I go, can this really be the ultimate radio station? It was like I should have been I I, I should have been an accountant. I was working in yeah, the you should have been sterile... in a cubicle, you know, yeah. with another guy sitting on the other side. <laughs> yeah. Coming at you, Prokel Harum. So we fair, we say farewell to Gary Brooker. As you know, Robin, he worked with George Harrison, Kate Bush, the Alan Parsons Project, Ringo Starr, Bill Wyman, and the Hollies. And I'm about to hit the post again. Here we go, right now. She said there is no reason. <laughs> Hitting double posts. Thank you. <laughs> Never been done before. We skipped the light fandango. Turned cartwheels across the floor. I was feeling kind of seasick. The crowd called out for more. The room was humming harder as the ceiling flew away. When we called out for another drink, the waiter brought a tray. You know what that means. I don't have to explain it to you, I hope. If you don't get it. I never it, knew what they were thinking about. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, shame on you. <laughs> Please explain it to me. <laughs> 32 shame. degrees, pretty chilly with a little breeze. Shame. Here, this will get you for you. It, and so it was that. Thank you, Gary. And so it was that later, as the miller told his tale, that her face, at first just ghostly, turned a wider shade of pale. Now do you get it? No. <laughs> hey Hey, now. Beautiful song. Peter Frampton. Yeah, it's a beautiful song. Uh, right after this, I'll announce the local school closings. Thank you. We had Peter Frampton on, who uh, has written some great songs himself, and he told me that when he heard this song for the first time, it stopped the room, and he told me this is a song. I asked him, "Did you what? what is a song you wish you wrote or... Wider shade. When I there. heard that, I was in the speakeasy in London. I heard it for the first time. And the place was, that song came through the PA and everybody went, you could hear a pin drop. Yeah. It had such instant appeal. Yeah, when Robin and I were at the speakeasy, we heard 1910 Fruit Gum Company and no pins were dropped as far as I could tell. The speakeasy. I, I was like, what year was that? A speakeasy. <laughs> He might be older than we think, Peter Frampton. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, I picked up my doll at the speakeasy. <laughs> well, there you go, Gary Brooker. Great voice, great song. You know how it goes. Let me see if... Um... Yeah, let's see here. American Idol started again, but no Bobby Bones. Uh, he's not on the show anymore as a consultant. And uh, Oh, really? Who they know. got uh, talking to the kids now? I don't know if I could watch it without Bobby Bones. <laughs> Bobby Bones. Uh, what else? Avril Lavigne has a new album called Love Sucks. Very yes, uh, she's back. Back? Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I want to give a shout out to... Uh, Little Lil Lil got it. Lil got it. The rap star. Um, I was watching his video. Somebody sent me a music video, and um, a whole video. He's reading Rolling Stone with me on the cover, and I. Oh wow! I, I believe it's a secret message to me. Lil Lil got it. 
and well, very gangster. Thank you. I like it. Yes, he's my new favorite rap star. Lil Got It. <laughs> Have you heard anything from Lil Got It? Yep. You, you, you heard yes, I the, did. Because he was holding up your magazine. How was your song? Oh, my God. It was fantastic. <laughs> I, I mean, um, that and Procol Harum. But I liked it. There you go. That's all I'm saying. I'll have to check that out. Little Got It. My wife and I came up with a new TV show we want to see. Someone's got to produce it because we're too lazy to do it. But it's called Fathers Alone with Their Children. You know, mothers pretty much in traditional families, you see, like the mom's usually in charge of the kids. But every once in a while, dad, you know, mom's had it and the dad will go out with a stroke. Dad has to take over, yeah. Dad takes over. And so we're walking and we watch some, we're watching some guy. He's got the stroller. He's got the baby in the stroller. And um, he he gave the kid like a metal spoon, like a full-size metal soup spoon, you know? Uh And the baby has it, and the baby keeps throwing it down on the ground. And this ground where we walk is like it's covered in dog shit. You know, like it's a place where people walk. It's a little yeah, thin sidewalk. Anything could be happening. Filthy. Oh, yeah. I mean, people are walking on it. Dogs are walking on it. Cats, birds you are name crapping it. on it. You know, <laughs> yeah, worms. Yeah. <laughs> so every time the metal spoon goes, every time the baby throws a metal spoon, he picks it up and gives it back to the baby. And I go, can you imagine if the mom knew? First of all, the spoon is so big, the baby could probably choke on it. Secondly, he keeps picking it up. Doesn't even doesn't even do the doesn't even wipe it a little bit. Yeah, nothing. He just gives it right back to the baby. And he kind of goes, you should keep this spoon. I could hear him talking to the baby. And I go, oh, my God, it'd be so great if the mom could see this and start yelling at him. You know, I'm pretty sure that that's that spoon had gotten thrown in some homeless man's piss or something. (laughs) I see I watch young moms. dads do that at resorts. Right. And, you know, like the mom always keeps the kid beside her or in front of her. Yeah. The dad's walking. The kid's running <laughs> off to the other right. side of the hotel. It's crazy. Yeah. The, the dads last about 30 seconds with the kid. Usually. Yeah. This guy at least was walking with the kid. I mean. Crazy. I remember I went on vacation with my wife and God, it was years ago. I was in Mexico and I'm staying at a nice hotel and uh, a lot of people were there from show business, including Les Moonves and his wife, Julie Chen Moonves. Uh-huh. And I, I was kind of weirded out because I hadn't spoken to Les since he sued me when I got fired or you know, whatever. I didn't even get fired from Infinity, CBS, whatever the fuck the company we were working for, Viacom. I don't even know what the name of the company. Yeah, we I don't remember was. which it was at that point. It used to change used to change every week. So I don't know. It was sort of awkward and we started talking and everything was cool. I was like, you know what? Who cares? I don't even give a shit. But Les just had a Les and Julie just had a baby. And Les is like older than me, right? Isn't he older? He's older than me. Um and, uh, maybe. Maybe a couple yeah. of years. But he did the thing where he married the young woman and then decided to have a baby. And I was like, I wonder how that works. And Julie looked like a good mom. You know, she was always doting on the baby and all that kind of shit. Then I saw she had to quickly run upstairs or something. She disappeared for a few minutes and Les was in charge. I was watching this whole thing. It was such great entertainment. I really miss going to a resort. I love to sit by the pool and watch people. Yeah. Especially if they're famous. But you don't always get a famous person to watch. But I like to watch really spoiled kids get their feet massaged by a little Mexican lady. And uh, it's just, it's great. It's great theater. 
as the kids go, could you rub me harder? And they're like, you know, 12 years old. Poor woman's rubbing their feet. I mean, everything about it is tragic and horrible. And But, uh, yeah. And this is, is what you than... do for relaxation. <laughs> oh, my God. Beth said to me the other day, if only people could walk with you like I do every day and they could hear your anger and viciousness at every person who walks by. <laughs> I see something wrong with every person. I see people as viruses. It's a terrible affliction. And she goes, oh, my God. And she goes, sometimes I jump right in with you because it's infectious. You, you. <laughs> She goes, it's a running monologue of horrible commentary about everyone. And it's funny. As Bob Odenkirk says in his new book, funny equals anger. You have to have anger if you're going to be a funny human being. You have to see. I said, this has been my, I've told Robin this when I met her. She said, what is your view of comedy? I said, I view the world through shit tinted glasses. <laughs> and she immediately signed on. He said, you're the guy I want to work with. Anybody with that kind of attitude can't be all bad. <laughs> He's got to be funny. <laughs> yeah. There's a guy I'm going to maybe throw in with. <laughs> Turns out I was one big cunt. But, um, but, 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 you know, uh, you know, so I remember watching, I remember sitting by the pool watching Les with the kid. And I said, I said to my wife, Watch Les. Let's see how long he lasts with this kid. <laughs> well, it was about tw about 30 seconds later, he did the handoff to the um, nanny. Oh, wow. You know, they, he yeah, couldn't yeah. last more than a... It didn't even take a minute. Robin, I clocked him. 30 seconds. Maybe. Maybe 31. I'll be generous. Yeah. yeah. I used to walk... Uh, you know, the, the thing that would bother me was that... I'm watching the kid because the dad is not paying attention. You know, when the kid's running off, the dad's eventually <laughs> going to say, where's the kid? So I'm going right. to know where the kid is. And I said, wait a minute. I'm trying to have a vacation. Why yeah. am I watching his kid? You're, you're afflicted with, with the same horror that I am. You know? <laughs> you're busy tracking that kid now so he doesn't drown. Right. But, uh, no, I remember. I, I, I enjoy. I really enjoy going to a hotel. I remember one year, uh, Jimmy Kimmel and Molly invited me to Mexico and they were staying at a house with a bunch of very, very famous, cool people. And then Jimmy said, you want to stay in the house with us? I go, absolutely not. <laughs> I want to stay at a hotel. I don't want to be, first of all, I don't want to be beholden to anybody. I do not want to stay in a house. And, um, you know, I also didn't like the setup. I didn't have the best room in the house. I was like, wait a second. You weren't the king. No. And I was like, this is bullshit. <laughs> I don't see myself like this. So I, I don't see I myself in a lesser room. No, like I was like, my room's really kind of shitty and there's a really nice room and I don't have it. <laughs> Not my idea of fun. Oh, my God. Did you have to share a no. bathroom? <laughs> no, no. But it was practically that. It was horrible. It was like one because you know what it is. Most people just go and they use the one nice room. There right. were 17 other people in the house. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was like, no, thank you. You know, give me the master suite or I'm out. <laughs> and somebody else is paying on. for the house, right? You're now going to demand they give you no. the master suite. <laughs> if, so, if I go to someone's house, I, yes. I chip in my fair share. I always do. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm willing to pay. Just give me the best room. <laughs> or give me a decent room. <laughs> I didn't work all this time to to be in the third best guest room. 
You know what I'm saying? Sorry. I'm vac- it's my vacation. <laughs> it's my vacation. Okay? Try and have a nice, relaxing time. I don't want to be sitting there looking at mice. <laughs> you think the other rooms have mice? <laughs> I know they did. Oh, dear. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, paying top yeah, dollar. Yeah, every once in a while, I think, you know, maybe I ought to rent a house somewhere. And then I'm like, you know, you don't necessarily don't want do a it. house. Don't do it. Don't rent a house. Because people I've learned live like shit. People who rent out houses live like shit. They really do. Because they go, you know what? I'm not going to fix that. I'll just rent it out. Because they're not living there. Right. And they don't care where you live in. It's nonsense. So I always wind up at a hotel. you damn right. Because a hotel, you call down a desk and this room is sucks. And then they That's move right. you. Yeah. Yep. Anyway. Hey, I got a bunch of things to go over with you because, Robin, uh, you're a big yenta and uh, you need to know. That's first right. Of all, we have... Inform me. What's going on? Okay. First of all, we have some business to do. Um, I want to talk to you about the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I was in a situation the other day where I was told the Red Hot Chili Peppers themselves, the whole band wants to come in and play music and everything. And I got wow. really stoked. Uh-huh. Because uh, I started to sit and listen to their catalog once again, and it is enormous. This band's got hit after hit after hit. And the Red Hot Chili Peppers were so gracious. They were like, Howard, what song? Pick out two of our songs from our catalog and decide what it is you want us to play live. They're letting you pick. Yeah. And I was like, get the fuck out of here. This is fantastic. In addition to talking to the boys, we will be sitting and, you know, talking music, just bullshitting, and then they're going to break into song. How special is that? So, uh, yeah, this is happening in April, but it's up to us. Maybe we should let one of the listeners in on this. You know? Well, you know, that could go really well or really badly. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, Got to be see. willing to say no if they come up with the wrong thing. Well, I mean, we'll come up. I mean, we'll decide. I was having yeah. trouble deciding, honestly. Well, there's a L- big catalog there. Here, I'll give you some of the songs that I pulled for us to decide from. First of all, okay. Under the Bridge. I would like to hear this live. Yes. Coming at you, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Under the Bridge, live on the Howard Stern Show. I mean, it's got that great hook. Right? So I was like, ask him to do that. This is one of the best. And then probably my favorite Red Hot Chili Peppers song was Give It Away. So I've got to... I mean, it's such a great... the, The hook is great, you know. Wait, give it away now. Give it away, give it away, give it away now. Give it away, give it away, give it away now. No, I got it down. What's he doing? Give it away, give it away. He's doing this. Give it away, give it away, give it away now. Give it away, give it away, give it away now. One, two, three. Give it away now. Give it away, give it away, give it away now. But it sounds like two or three. And then there. He's doing something. And then I thought of scar tissue would be great because this is just a. First of all, I love the guitar part. Mm-hmm. Great hook again. Then here you got other side. 
I would love to see the boys do it. Well, now I see why you're running into trouble picking. How long, how long will I slide? Wow. Separate my side. Boys have had hit after hit. Californication is another one of my favorites. Yeah, that's a great song. I was actually leaning to give it away and Californication, but then I got... I really had a trouble deciding, so I said, well, maybe I'll ask you on the air. This is getting harder and harder now. Uh, here, what about this? This one's called By the Way. I think you know it. Beautiful. I would, I would like to see them do that. And can't stop. Danny, California. So good. I was like, well, can, can't they do them all? Like, do a full concert? Yeah, why don't I do a concert? <laughs> I was having a really hard time with... Um... See, I love that riff. Yeah. That's snow, you know. So, I mean, uh, you know, and then the guys are all standing there going, all right, Howard, which two songs do you want? I go, I don't know. And then they do that uh, great cover of Higher Ground. Yeah. It's a great one. Let's see here. I'll give this guy. This guy claims. I was going to say, so you're letting somebody in the audience weigh in? I was going to have you do it, but you seem as well. As I'm I having am. trouble too. All right, Eric, go ahead. Pick the two songs. Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, so good morning. my vote is my vote is for uh, "Breaking the Girl." Very good tune. It's a good tune, but I don't know that I want. I don't want you to call in and add more songs to my dilemma. Just right, you got to pick I, from what we're playing here. Yeah, I narrowed I narrowed I it down to these. Wait. Play Breaking the Girl, though. It's extremely uh, okay, all right, all right. Okay, He's stuck thank on you, Breaking the Girl. You. Yeah, yeah. He's stuck on a one. That's what guys do. Guys who are into music, they always want to prove they know more than you do. Look, so like I'm going to go outside that box right, and right. reel you in. <laughs> yeah, they want to be like, no, man, you're doing it all wrong. So I gave him the choice of, let's see, nine songs, and he added a tenth. Yeah. See what I mean? I can't. Well, you know, they did a study of little boys in school. And, you know, when the teacher asks a question, a boy doesn't even have to know the answer and he'll put his hand in the air. That's right. And then <laughs> you call him and the, and, and the little turd is like, um, um, uh, um. Because <laughs> they want to win World War Two. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I tell you, I've done this before and some guy will call up. You know what you got to have the chili peppers do? What's that? Tell them, do the B-side from their 1986 demos. Yeah. What? <laughs> I just gave you nine songs. Um, ugh. 
Yeah, Paul, go ahead. What two? Yeah, I got Dose and uh, Can't Stop. I don't know if you've listened to those two. They're great songs. Hey, Dose hey, played on the Another time. guy. <laughs> I know, I know, I know those two Sorry. songs, but I tried to narrow it down to nine, and now you guys are adding more songs. You're not helping. I heard you. This is this is where guys. It's well, like trying is, to compare. It persists into adulthood. They just can't yeah. help themselves. Cunt. It's like comparing Cunt. dick size. It's like they have to show you they know other songs. We know yeah, the other Cunt. songs. You want to add dose to the list? Seems like a lot well, of people. Oh, that's going to make it easier. <laughs> clamoring. Well, I tell you what. What do you think of like? Uh, I don't know. Forget it. This this isn't going anywhere. I'll 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 decide. Give me the list. I'm going to ruminate right. over this overnight. Under the bridge. Maybe I I'll put write a thing it down up now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll I'll email you this. Under the yeah. bridge. Give it away. Scar tissue. Other side. Californication. By the way, can't stop. Danny California. And snow. Hey ho. Right. Hey ho. There I'll take that list and I'll start list. Ending. Right. And really get into it and decide what you want to hear live. Yeah. I mean, or you could complicate it and add more songs to the list like the, our listeners do. Right. I'll listen to all those, too. <laughs> right. Yes, Karen. Karen in Pennsylvania. Oh, hey, good morning. Um, good morning. I love the Chili Peppers. I'm so glad they're oh. coming in. Yes. I'm not adding to the list at all, um, and I Good. love you, I love Robin, but I think um, Under the Bridge is like a, a given. you got to play that. That's so a good one. It's a great riff and a great song. Great song, Under the Bridge. Good. And? And I love By the Way. That's my vote. Oh, okay. By the way. Yeah, I think that's another, like, solid one like under the bridge it's kind of like mm -hmm. lower like it takes you back oh yeah sing it honey. oh wait we want to hear him sing it, not you. remember no, i want to go ahead karen <laughs> i like it go oh i love this when that starts off like that uh, and then we're singing it see the show tonight there's a lot on Heavy glow. That's come on. I mean, it doesn't yeah. get better than that. Yeah. By yeah. the way, I, oh, his his voice is like it's like pure California. His voice. There you go. All right, we'll work on this. I'm excited. I should, Sorry. Have a great day. Right. Yeah, that'll be a good show. I'm not letting Rock and Roll Hall of Fame voters Gary and John Hine decide because they get enough decisions in real life. They I was going to go to them, but. John, do, well, John, you can do you hear have, what they have to say. All right, John, do you have an opinion? You don't have to take their recommendations. What is your opinion on what songs the Chili Peppers? You can only choose two. That's it. Yeah, it's a great list, and I'm not going to pull the other ones that aren't on the list. Uh, I go with Under the Bridge. I think that's a great, great tune, Mellow. But the upbeat one I would go with is Danny California. I like that tune, mm. and I think uh, every musician gets to show off a little bit in that song. Little drums. Huh. All right. I, I can't believe no one's saying give it away. That's a give it away, give it away, give it away. What do you say, Gary? 
I, I don't think you have the Red Hot Chili Peppers on. There's no way they they have to do Under the Bridge. It's just a, okay. such a great song. And uh, for me, the second song is probably Scar Tissue. Oh, hmm. Good choice. But all of those are good, but it's got to be Under the Bridge. Yeah, and I like this guitar yeah. part. Yeah. <clears throat> Maybe we'll do that. Maybe we'll do that. Those two. Under the bridge and scar tissue. Right now, that's where I'll lock in on. But it's subject to change. I got to give those guys notes. Can they do three? <laughs> what do you want for a third? Go ahead. Well, I could probably be, push. Uh, give it away. Give it away? Okay. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. That'd be great. Um, I, I'll be a schnur. I'll go, you guys, do three. <laughs> That's what it, the definition of a schnurr. Hey, I'd like to do two songs for you guys. You know, we, we, we're going to bring the whole band in. Okay, do three. We can't decide on two. He says, you know what? I, they should have said offered one and then gotten two. But I'll go for a third. I'll say we want under the bridge, scar tissue, and give it away. But if you're only going to do two under the bridge and scar tissue, how's that? Okay. Or. Don't confuse me. And they do one whole song. Oh, they're doing a whole and song. And then a medley. Oh, oh no. They don't they don't, they don't do They don't want to do a medley? I mean, I don't even <laughs> want them to do a medley. I get annoyed with medleys because I want to hear <laughs> the whole you? song. At least yeah. you get a little bit of yeah. all these great songs. Now, fuck that. <laughs> you got the band, they're rolling, and then they're going to stop. Like, you know. No, medley, you sort of arrange it so you can keep going. This isn't the Super Bowl. I hate that when they do that. <laughs> Let me hear a song. Right. All right. right. Yes. I don't think they want to do a medley, Robin. They want to do songs. All right. right. Well, I'm just trying. So go for three. By the way, here's a Gary audiobook talking about his experience with the Red Hot Chili Peppers at the North Pole. That's right. Oh. Yes, Gary audiobook. Oh, go ahead. Great. Yeah. This is my list of the most amazing things that I've got to do that I thought I would never do because I was involved with the show. So number one. Seeing the Red Hot Chili Peppers play on the North Pole. Got invited to uh, one of those gigs where they did. It was for Molson's. My wife and I went. We were on a Russian ice cutter and going by icebergs and everything. And then we went and saw the Red Hot Chili Peppers with 150 people. It was great. Wow. Why there did Gary is. get to do that? I don't know. Because <laughs> you didn't want to go, Robin. <laughs> I'm sure you that probably Gary. Got first. <laughs> I'm sure you didn't want to be on a boat to uh, Alaska, you know. But by the way, I think um, in uh, in his book, I thought it was one of the most amazing gigs. I think Anthony Kiedis in his book said it's like one of the worst. Like he hated everything about it. He hated <laughs> well, of flying course. up there. You know, for the, you think about it, I'm sure they got paid a ridiculous amount of money, probably a million bucks to go do it. And uh, be, and and when it's a corporate sponsor, you got 150 people you're playing for. For these guys who play stadiums, they're probably like, no you know what? Is there's no there's no energy here, you know? It's like, oh Jesus, I'm playing for Everything Gary Delabate. Everything about this is hard. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Gary Delabate standing there eating shrimp, watching me play. <laughs> it was mostly people. It was most of the people that were there. There were a couple of people who won contests, but most of it were people who owned beer distributors from all over the world. Oh, you know I mean? and like, you know they make oh. the best audiences. Right. Exactly. exactly. Honestly, right. yes. Guy with a big fat belly and tits watching the red hot <laughs> oh, chili man, peppers eating eating shrimp. Jitties. A lot of ruddy faced guys. You know, you know, you don't get a ruddy face because you drank one night. You have to drink a thousand nights in a row to get that face. <laughs> oh my God. 
Anthony Kiedis wrote in his book, that night in the North Pole, I hated Gary Delabate staring at me while I sang. <laughs> <laughs> he constantly cleared his throat. <clears> throat> so great. All right. Well, good. I'm sure we'll hear from other people about what they want to hear from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Uh, but right now we got Under the Bridge, which, by the way, is a tough song for Anthony Kiedis. It's about hitting rock bottom during his heroin addiction. It's very, mm-hmm. very, you're asking him to drag up a lot of memories. He didn't even well, want to I'm put sure it on Well, I'm sure he sang the song enough now that, you know, it's not that hard for him to do. Very hard. Rick Rubin had to convince him to put it on an album. He thought it was too personal. But you're asking him to dredge it up, Robin, so he will do it for you. But I'm just saying, I mean, this isn't the only time he'll have sung it. No, this will be the first time he's ever sung it, actually. (laughs) (laughs) For you. (laughs) Oh. What did we say the other one was? Scar tissue? Yes. That song won a Grammy. For the band. And uh, and isn't that what he called his autobiography? Scar tissue, Anthony, when he uh, put it out? I think so. Gary, you read the book. No. I didn't. I don't remember the name. <laughs> right. I don't remember the names of books either. <clears throat> you're I'm right, Howard. It's called, it, you're right. Yes. It's called Scar Tissue. Right. Hit him with the You do remember. You have well, that I remember. I read his. His, his was a good book. I love rock and roll guys putting out books. I do. I love to read about the climb. That's why I'm having uh, Big Bobby Odenkirk on today. He wrote a good book. He's uh, it's all about his climb to being a comedy writer and how Big bad he Bobby. wanted it. Big Bobby is his name now. Big Bobby <laughs> Odo. Big Bobby O. Ever since he did an action movie, which is so ridiculous, but it worked. Uh, it's the best. Yeah, it really is. Uh, what else do I have to tell you? So many things. I was watching, um, the Z100, uh, Scott Shannon's, um, did a documentary on the rise to, of Z100 from worst to first. Quite an accomplishment, as anyone on radio knows, to take a radio station that was completely dead last and bring it to number one. And you know, I'm a radio aficionado so of course i had to watch it and they he put it together with elvis duran it's uh scott shannon elvis duran put up their own money and uh, produced a, a, a documentary and homage to their accomplishment and uh, i'm watching it and uh, he said something scott shannon i know what it was i was watching it, and it reminded me of my dad they were interviewing steve kingston mm-hmm. and steve kingston said about scott shannon Scott always wanted to be on the air more than being a program director. Uh. And I said, well, that's very wise because my father gave me some good advice. I mean, yes, my father mostly crippled me emotionally and mentally and made me feel like a maggot. But he did give me good advice when it came to radio. He said to me, never take yourself off the air. Because I got offered a job as a program director, which I took because I needed money. But he said, I, I don't care what they tell you. You stay on the air. I don't know how my father knew that, but he knew it. Yeah, it was like, why did he, he did he not have a an explanation? Uh, he and did. it's because? What was the he because? Said, 
because to be the program director, you must try to predict what people like with music, millions of people, what they will like. It's impossible. And uh, he said it's a ridiculous job, that it's a thankless job, because my dad was in radio. And yeah. he said, um, just stay on the air. And I remember the general manager of the station I was working on said, you are, he was Israeli, he goes, you are horrible on the air. That's my impression of an Israeli dude. It's hard. I know he sounds like Dracula, but he was like, <laughs> Everybody you are horrible like on the air. He goes, you are horrible. You're, you're worse than anything. But you... You should be program director. Just concentrate on that. He was telling me the opposite of what my dad was right. telling me. And, I, and I'm, my, my father's, between my father and this guy, my fa there was a battle going on in my head. Never go off the air. Never go off the air. <laughs> it was two strange sounding people arguing in my head. But uh, there you go. Uh, so I watched that with great interest. And I said, you know, that is quite an accomplishment. If you could be the, the guy on the air and the program director and bring the station number one, God bless you. Yeah. And we know, we know how hard it is because Robin and I worked at K-Rock for years and years and years. And while we had the number one morning show, the rest of the station never, ever equaled our ratings. And it was uh, frustrating. We, we worked at... Yeah, we didn't ever work at the number one radio station. <laughs> no. We just we had the number one show. Yeah. <laughs> Which was fine, I guess, but it would have been nice. But we never, I, we never had um, a success with the rest of the station. But I was uh, very, very impressed with uh, Scott's accomplishment. Z100 went from last de debuting in last place. Seventy-five days later, they were in first place. Wow! And I went, wow, that's something to hang. Yeah, you got to tip your hat. You got to tip your hat to that man. That's pretty fucking nuts. Um, we did that in the morning, but the rest yeah, of the but station. Yeah, we didn't drag no. everybody else with us. <laughs> no, and I had enough brains not to be the program director because I didn't want that the stink of failure on me. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know. I don't know what people want to hear. I can't even pick two Red Hot Chili Pepper songs. <laughs> I'm having a hard time. Imagine picking a whole fucking playlist of songs for an entire New York City, New Jersey, and Connecticut. It's crazy. You can't do it. But Scott did it. There you go. And I I congratulated him. I said, that is an accomplishment that I admire. You know? That's as good well, as... Where do you, you find this documentary? You find it online. I don't know. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? You you, you type in, and then you can you can buy it. You know, you, you pay a couple of bucks, and you can watch it. All right. But, I'd um, like to see that. Oh, Robin sees everything. You have no idea what she sees. No, I don't see everything. You know, you see I everything. I still haven't seen Reacher. <laughs> oh, my God. Reacher. Reacher's great. I'll tell you what's great is Boba, Boba Fett. I finished I that. I love Boba Fett. Yeah. And that Ming-Na Wen. She's uh, the girl. We, yeah, yeah, she's great. And Baby Yoda, Grogu is great. All good. The Mandalorian's in there. It's really good. I know. I guess these guys really get upset that they have to be in those helmets all the time. So they keep taking them off. <laughs> I know. And people complain about masks. Oh, my God. You know, I got this whole situation going on with my mom and everything. 
I had to wear a mask like all day yesterday, uh, Saturday. Ooh. And, uh, oh my God. I Was thought that I tough? broke it. Well, yeah, I thought I broke my ear. Like, um, because like, you know, the, the string comes the around string that goes behind. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I kept folding my ear down and I thought I broke the cartilage in my ear because I don't know. I never can get a really, truly comfortable mask. And you know, I'm a big believer in masks. Masks work. It keeps you apart from the virus that is humanity. It is fabulous. Wear your mask. I see now everybody I come in contact with puts a mask and they, they pull it down below their nose. <laughs> I even like that doesn't work. And they have this whole thing on Saturday Night Live this week about how the mask really doesn't work. It was unnecessary. And I'm like, I haven't what? had a sniffle nope. of any it works. sort since I've been wearing to, a mask. You talk to any doctor in the ER who has been around more people with COVID and they said, if I wear my mask, I don't get COVID. I could be, I could, I mean, I just wash my hands. That's it. That's it. It works. Believe me. I know. You know how well, I know? Now all the mask mandates are going away, so we'll see what happens. Everyone's going to have COVID. You heard Ben Stiller. You know what's crazy? Ben Stiller told a story on this show. He went to Madison Square Garden. He went to see the next play with Pete Davidson and John Stewart. And Ben describes that um, he was he had a mask with him, but he was really kind of shamed into not wearing his mask. He said no yeah. one was wearing a mask, and he said. The kicker to the story is I went home. I had COVID from going to the garden without a mask. I had it. And, um, you know, I was thinking about it. Our country has stopped doing metrics and trying to figure out what's going on or tracing. But think about it. How many people out of the 20,000 or so people that go and don't wear masks, how many of them came down with COVID? How many of them were hospitalized and how many died? Because they say one in 700 people die from COVID. You wonder what the stats are, but uh, no one no one cares anymore. They tried in the beginning to figure out what goes on in an event like this. I think if well, you saw those with numbers. with the home testing, it was like nobody was, you know, nobody's tracking what your test says at home. No. So it was like they lost the the thread that would have told them what was going on. Yep. There you go. Um, I'm turning my head away because I'm trying to. I, I got to take a break. But when we come back, I could either give you a Bigfoot update. I could give you a President's Day audiobook. We're a little late with that. Where Jimmy Carter and we took Jimmy Carter's audiobook and had a conversation with uh, President Obama's audiobook. And uh, the two of them had a conversation. I could play you that. I have a high pitch Eric update with his whole situation. Is that with and, Debbie um, the Come Lady? Of course. Of course, Robin. Okay. Just America's checking. gearing up for Debbie the Come Lady and Eric. <laughs> the big super blow, as Jimmy called it. And uh, that event is scheduled for March, for, March 14th in Florida. Oh, it's but uh, getting closer. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to give you an update. I'll tell you what. I'll give you the high pitch Eric update when we return. And I, I probably should play you the President's Day audio book just because. Yeah, before it's... it gets too old and we forget there was a President's Day. Right. The premise is slowly slipping away. <laughs> and, uh, and I should probably give you a come hat update. Yes. I was wondering about the come hat. Where is it? What's happening to it? I know. You need a come hat 
update. <laughs> okay, that worked. All righty. Uh, come had update before Bob Odenkirk. <laughs> Never mind. Okay, let's uh, just say this, Robin. What shall we say? We shall say thank you to ZipRecruiter. Uh, looking for qualified candidates? Let ZipRecruiter do the work for you. You can try it for free today at ZipRecruiter.com slash 100. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash 100. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Ah, ah, yes, thank you. Thank you, my yeah, mistress. Thank you, my you're mistress. You're welcome. Yeah, yes, again, thank my mistress. You. Thank yes. you, my mistress. Thank you, my mistress. Do you have again, thousands of photos on your iPhone? What do you want? You want your high pitch Eric update or you want this President's Day audiobook? Let me let me start with the President's Day audio. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's let the presidents have their say about okay. their day. Look, here's the bottom line. The guys put a lot of work into this. To to edit these audiobooks so that you have ex presidents saying really disgusting, horrible things <laughs> requires more work than you will ever know. It really I mean, you're talking about man hours now. I, I, I can tell you this, 43 people worked on this to get Jimmy Carter and President Obama to say really rude things. <laughs> uh, during the making of this bit, two people died, actually, believe it or not. They really? Died it's age. like the yeah. Panama Canal. You know, people are yeah. dying in the construction. <laughs> yeah, it's like the Panama <laughs> Canal. That's exactly what it's like. All right, so last Monday was President's Day, and we asked the audiobooks of former presidents Barack Obama and Jimmy Carter to reflect on what President's Day means to them. And, of course, uh, on President's Day, I got too busy to actually play it, even though 43 <laughs> people worked on it. Uh, Richard was working on this. He told me he didn't speak to his family for four months while working on this. That's right. So here is a clip where Barack Obama is telling Jimmy Carter how he celebrates President's Day each year. Here we go. Nobody gives a shit about President's Day. Wait a second. Barack told Jimmy how he celebrates President's Day each year. But then you hear Jimmy. Okay. Yeah. I'll go. I'll go. Who cares? I'll go with it. It doesn't <laughs> matter. It doesn't matter. We, walk, we worked four years on this. By the way, the point of this bit is presidents really let loose once they're out of office. You understand? Right. All right. So Barack told Jimmy how he celebrates President's Day each year. Nobody gives us a shit about President's Day except for us, former presidents. That's right, Jimmy. The truth is, it's only an excuse to get my once a year blowjob, right? Oh, God. I remember blowjobs. But my penis is like a wet noodle these days. Shit. I really miss getting some good head from Roseland like many years ago. That's just sad, Jimmy. Yes, sir. It is a terrible condition. Well, I figure my Johnson still has a lot of good years left in it. I must be lucky. I'd like to watch you get that President's Day blow job if that's all right with you, Barack. I'm honored you're asking, and I'd love for the 39th President of the United States to watch me get my cock sucked. What do you think of that conversation? Wow. Yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, who knew that, you know, when the doors are closed and the cameras yeah. go away, how these guys talk. That's right. That's the idea, Robin. <laughs> that conversation took 4,000 hours. We clocked it. That's pretty. Uh, you know, I'm thinking when Jimmy Carter's talking about poor Rosalind 
trying to get down on her knees to get yeah. well, well, that's now. Uh, right. <laughs> Jimmy, Jimmy Carter and Barack Obama are not happy that President's Day is mostly known for big sales on appliances. It really okay. bothers them. Here they are in conversation. You know what, Jimmy? This sucks. The thing people like most about President's Day is that you can get washers and dryers for much cheaper prices than any other time of the year. I agree, Barack. No one celebrates the fact that I facilitated the Camp David Accords. Yep. People were more inclined to be focusing on a goddamned refrigerator that talks to them for 10% off. That's some bullshit. And no one takes a moment to remember that I killed that fucker Osama bin Laden. That is impressive. I know. I sent a badass Navy SEAL sniper to shoot him right in his bitch face. Boom. Dead. Instead, they just run to the closest big box retailers for a discounted toaster. Damn, they are such ungrateful bitches. Why don't they have the biggest sales on Arbor Day? Yeah, trees are stupid. There you go. Another <laughs> very private conversation between Jimmy Carter audiobook and Barack Obama audiobook. Robin, in this next startling clip between these two ex-presidents, Barack and Jimmy talk about their love of a show that I love. Oh. Listen carefully. This is them just casually talking about television. Jimmy, did you see the new season of The Bachelor? Barack, I am not only a proud American, but also a very proud member of The Bachelor Nation. Me too. But I was confused by how fucking sexy the new host, Jesse Palmer, is. I mean, his handsome face always cast in a dazzling smile. I think he is better looking than the actual Bachelor. How the hell did that happen? I agree completely. Jesse and The Bachelor should be kept apart at all times. If I was one of their bachelorettes, I'd forget about The Bachelor and concentrate almost exclusively on dropping my underwear and getting plowed by Jesse and his huge, bulbous hog. God damn it. You're right, Jimmy. Jesse Palmer is the definition of Ipe Kennedy. He's a hot motherfucker. Anyway, happy President's Day. There you go. Um, actually, that was an actual conversation. That wasn't uh, edited. That wasn't that the was audio the, book you picked that right, up? Yeah. <laughs> they like The Bachelor? I see you're having fun with this, so I'll give you one more. Finally, Jimmy Carter and Barack Obama share a little secret about one of the fun things you get to do when you're the president. Mm. This is something we didn't know. All right. Listen carefully. Barack, what was your favorite part of the presidency? Well, that's easy. It was the top secret bedroom at Camp David where we fucked aliens. I'm sure you remember that aliens landed in Roswell in 1947. And the first thing scientists noticed was that they were super horny. And practically every U.S. president since then has been sucked and fucked constantly by those wonderful little guys. Hey, Barack, me more was my favorite. It would put 12 of its 18 fingers right up my ass Jesus. and make me come all over those big green titties. Wait, I think that's a highly secret program. You should shut up. Yeah, well, so we just edited it out. Okay. Instead, I'll say the best part of my presidency was, I'm not sure, how about the airplane? Right, Air Force One. Sure, whatever you decide. But I missed me more badly. <laughs> hey, so what you learn, by the way, if these two did a podcast, I would listen. So revealing. And, if they uh, talked like this, you know, if they yeah. start acting like they did in the White House again, that'd be a bore. 
Alex Jones is going crazy with this. He said, I knew there were aliens, and I knew the government was hiding <laughs> And they're fucking them, yes. Yeah. Well, I got to credit uh, President Trump with that. He's changed politics. Politicians now speak more openly. They say whatever's on their mind. Yeah, yeah unfortunately, the they do it while they're in the White House. Right. Meat Morp had huge titties. <laughs> I didn't know Meat Morp was a woman. Yeah. Had 18 fingers that she stuck up uh, <laughs> President Obama's asshole. I guess that he, she gave a, a yeah. good prostate massage. Yeah. Let's go to Jay. Jay in Pennsylvania. What's up? Hey, now, Howard. Good morning, my brother. Hey, now. All right. All right. What's up? Hey, listen, man. I've been waiting since last week. You know, we got on all those... Best song covers. I I got it. I need some Bigfoot in my life, man. I mean, he is definitely top five whack pack. I mean, fuck the high pitch Eric update. I I, I got to hear some Bigfoot, brother. He he is the best. Mm, a request for Bigfoot. A Bigfoot right. update. Let me see what time it is. It's eight thirty. Maybe I can get to both. All right, Jay. Let me see if I can tackle that. Okay. You you are the man, Howard. Much uh, love, brother. Thank you. Much love to you. Um, yeah, I mean, listen, the, the high pitch arc thing is relevant because it's coming up on that. America uh, is gearing up for the Debbie the Come Lady super blow of high pitch Eric. The event is scheduled for March 14th in Florida. Sal got an update for us. So far, Eric has recruited his good buddy, Joe from California, to videotape the super blow. Oh, yeah. Like I wanted nothing Does to do really with it. Does he really think he can get it up on camera? Well, that's the that's. Hey guys, where's my um my my audio for? We're having so many technical difficulties today. I'm straining to get this on the air. Do we have well, that? Apologize to the audience. I apologize. <laughs> Why should I apologize? Not my fault. I'm not taking responsibility for this mess. <laughs> Guys, can you get me the high pitch Eric update or not? Just somebody talk to me. Thank you. All right. They got it for me. Thank you, guys. Um, so Eric recruited sorry. his. Yes. Uh, Eric recruited his. Um, I think the Russians attacked our computers this morning I, I, because I talked about Putin and he said he's a scumbag ah. and he should be dead. And I think what's going on now is we're being hacked. I'm under siege here. In the middle of them attacking the Ukraine, they're also attacking the show. Well, if they split their um, attention, maybe they'll get defeated quicker. So you're you asked a a performing a public service. Right. You asked a very good question. What is it with Eric? Is he going to be able to come? All this kind of shit. So Sal got us answers. And here we go. Uh, this guy, Joe, who's going to travel with High Pitch Eric, he is not thrilled about driving to Florida with Eric. He also believes Eric will not be able to come. Here is mm. Joe, an insider, talking about this. So, Joe, you're paying your own way from California to New York, and then Eric will be driving you to Florida. What's Eric like when he drives? Um, a lot of road rage, a lot of yelling at other cars. Yeah. We went to Starbucks, and he sideswiped a car. One of the first times he was driving, he almost hit somebody crossing the street. I mean, really almost hit someone. You, you know, there's a video of me screaming, like, upset. Well, good luck on the drive. But once you arrive, do you think Eric will be able to come for Debbie? I don't think he's going to be able to perform. I've been with Eric in that kind of situation before. 
and he has not been able to perform. Wow. Can you give me an example? September 2019, we took a cruise to Mexico, and there were four guys. We said, hey, $90, let's get Eric a blowjob. We all pitched in, and Eric, uh, Eric went up in the room, and he comes out and says, fuck, I couldn't do it. Just like the disappointment, like, fuck, I couldn't. He said, he, he, I think he said, I couldn't finish. And how long was he in the room? Probably 20 minutes. And was this lady attractive? She was a 10. Gorgeous. So a regular straight guy should have been able to come with no problem. No problem. 90 bucks for a 10. Wow. That's uh. Where were they? <laughs> Maybe Mexico. <it> was Mexico. <laughs> yeah, it was Mexico. I think that's what <laughs> right, is the right sound. Makes sense. <laughs> yeah, ninety, 90 bucks for a ten. Yep. Well, Debbie hopes that Eric doesn't jack off for at least two weeks prior, so he will have a huge load. If I have, if I stop me if I'm wrong, Sal. Okay. Eric You're has correct. also lost. Eric has also lost twelve pounds in the past month. He's on a serious oh. diet. He believes if he loses weight, he will be able to blow five to ten loads a day. Is that correct, Sal? Yeah. His original intention was 20 loads a day. And then he goes, well, uh, maybe I overcalculated that. Maybe um, probably five to ten. Yeah. So right. his goal is five to ten loads per day. <laughs> uh, Debbie, the cum lady, is excited about Joe coming to Florida to film the blowjob. Perfect. I'm glad. I mean, if Joe would want me to blow him too, I mean, more than willing, willing, ready to go. The more loads <laughs> uh -huh. I could get, the better. Maybe he could help me hold um, Eric's legs up so I could get to his ass better. I, I could always use an assistant. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad to hear that things are rolling. I'm getting excited. It's like changing car tires or something. I mean, uh, it's a big yeah, project. Yeah, I'm thinking they need to move in heavy equipment, you know, so that Eric's legs <laughs> like, can be lifted. <laughs> yeah, why not just do it in an auto repair shop and get him on one of those lifts? <laughs> Got a forklift in there. So uh, I, I think the plan was in her mind that if Eric can't come, Debbie's going to attack Joe like a hungry lion. Yeah, she's going to get some cum from somewhere. <laughs> does Joe does Joe know yet that he signed up to be Debbie's cum assistant for uh, yes, Eric? Yes, he, he, he's aware of it. Um, Debbie's very passionate about this topic of ejaculation. And she we asked her, Sal asked her what her thoughts were on the staff coming on Richard Christie's hat, that bit that we're doing. I don't now. think it's a good idea. Because the thought of wasting loads is ridiculous. It doesn't make sense. I mean, if someone wants to come on something, come in a bottle, give it to me. I'll appreciate it more and I'll be thankful for it. And I'm trying to get guys to come and, you know, save their loads in condoms. You guys are wasting it on a cap. A, a load is, should be precious and be savored, not wasted. Imagine your life. You're jealous of a hat. I mean, my God. <laughs> well, just think of all the loads you guys are wasting. Oh, my God. She I has no one idea yesterday. the waste that's happening here. <laughs> oh, my God. I actually watched that um, karate sex uh, where the, 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 the two dads swap their daughters in the karate really? uniforms. Yeah. I, uh, I in fact, uh, did blow a load. Uh, I watched it. <laughs> it's a horrible video. I mean, it's the darkest porn I've ever watched because two dads are doing karate in their outfits, their karate outfits. They're in their geese. Yeah. Who told me about this? You, Sal, right? This originally? No, I, not me. No, someone did. And uh, I think it was Benji. Benji said he was watching no, karate I, who porn. Who was that? I don't remember, but I said, okay, I'll go watch it. So I wrote it down, and then I said, all right, let me see. And I put in karate porn, and it was the first thing that came up. Wow. 
and these two dads are working out with each other's daughter. And one of the dads starts like the, the girl hurt her shoulder. He starts rubbing her shoulder. Next thing you know, he's got her titty popped out of the gi and he's like playing with her nip. And the other dad freaks out. He goes, what do you do to my daughter? And they start to get into their karate stance to beat the shit out of each other. And the daughters are like, Dad, we don't want to see you guys beat the shit out of each other. It's no big deal. We don't care. And, uh, in fact, uh, why don't each of you stretch us and do whatever the fuck you want? And the dads talk it over, and they're like, this is really maybe not right, or maybe it is right. I don't know. They're not sure. Yeah. <laughs> Next thing you know, the one dad is working on the other dad's daughter, and, the, and they're there. They're, they're, and then the, and then the geese come off. And these both gentlemen are receiving blowjobs from uh, the other guy's daughter. Wow. And then during this actual sex, one dad is fucking a daughter. The other one is getting a blowjob. Uh, one daughter is sitting on the other daughter's face. I never saw a setup like this. And it's, <laughs> practically, it's practically incest. It's practically incest. These dads are almost having sex with their own children. And I'm... Um, I would like to tell you I didn't come to this, but I did. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't have these kind of fantasies. I really don't. Well, let right. me ask you something. Uh, is this going to be like a search uh, subject for you now? No, no because uh, I'm telling you, after that, I watched the porn uh, of uh, where um, it was two women. That was too much for me, the karate porn. <laughs> I mean, I was really, I was like, my God, what a theme. Uh, what a what a terrible thing! These two dads giving their Who daughters this to up. Yeah, I mean this this is very sick. And I came to it. Oy, very. <laughs> <laughs> Which what what does that say about you? <laughs> horrible, horrible video. <laughs> and uh, listen, I took karate with my daughters. I wasn't letting anyone near them. But uh, this no. video is wacky. This video is wacky. So the next thing I watched were uh, two women teaching each other how to squirt. It's disgusting. That was disgusting. That I did because you bailed uh, I on that one. You yeah, couldn't. I mean, I, I I couldn't take it. <laughs> it's definitely urine. I mean, it, there's no doubt in my mind. Anyway, getting back to Debbie the Come Lady, she is so desperate to blow high pitch Eric. She's been wanting this for years. It's finally happening. Happening. And you asked a good question. Is high pitch Eric capable of having sex and finishing? Is he even attracted to women? Is he attracted to men? There's so, so we, many questions. Right. So we dug into the archives to investigate Eric's sexual history. And it left us with more questions than answers. So <laughs> it's confusing because, first of all, Eric's knowledge of sex is so limited at best. He claims this is why he last, I'm thinking when he says he can come five to ten times, he doesn't know what that means. Right. I don't know I what know. he thinks a load is. When he had it, he see, he he claimed he last had a girlfriend in 2008, and he told us she liked getting fingered, and we asked him to demonstrate for us on the air, and it was clear he had no idea what he was doing. Here we go. Uh, this is the vagina right here. Let me see. Where? Yeah. Right see. here. That's right. That's right. So I put my fingers here. Right. I play with it inside. That's right. That's the right thing to do. And then right there, so I do that for a few seconds. Right. And after I do that, I take my two fingers and rub right up here. Oh, That's okay. the asshole. No, it's not. Yeah, it is. It is. You got it upside down? Yeah, yeah. it's it upside down. You got his finger in her asshole. Oh. 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 
I told him, Eric, the, the, the clitoris is not where the poopy comes out. <laughs> Jeez. So I don't know what's going to be. I, I, I don't have high hopes for this, but it should be interesting. And uh, in terms of sex, he's very naive. We once gave Eric a quiz of sex terms and he didn't do well. I have a montage of some of his answers that he got wrong, and it was. And, and so, to answer your question, Robin, I do, I do not believe that Eric will pull yeah, this that off. That means having sex on your back. A cowgirl is when a when a guy fucks a girl with a cowboy hat on the farm. I'm not sure what the purpose of a juice spot is, but I know it's in her ass. Sonoria is a fungus found in your feet. Necrophilia means when you kiss someone's neck and you give him a hickey. Tossing your salad means when a woman. Puts salad on your cock and she eats it. Labia is part of a woman's breasts. Incest is you want to burn incest and it makes a nice smell. The camel toe is when a woman wears tight clothes and it looks like she has a penis. Well, uh, you did all right with camel toe. <laughs> sort of. Mm, sort of. I love the tossing your salad. That's the best. Yeah. <laughs> she puts salad like, on your dick. And I eats- like necrophilia. When you kiss yes. someone's neck. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Our correspondent, John Lieberman, did an embedded with high pitch in 2015. Eric couldn't even give a clear answer on whether he masturbates or not. Do you masturbate? No. You don't masturbate? No. I, you know, well, well sometimes, sometimes if I have to, I will. How many times a week? Maybe f- three to four times a week. So a minute ago, you said you don't masturbate, but you do masturbate three to four times a week. Yes. So when you masturbate, what do you think about? What do I think about? Uh, well, I think about how many hot females there are out there. All right. All right. Look, but then, I, uh, you should have asked him, what is masturbation? Well, wait a second. I'm not done yet, Robin. Right. High Pitch was in the studio shortly after that interview, and he made a startling revelation. There's a TV show I want to go on. Why? Which is what? Blue Bloods. Yeah, why do you want to go on there? Because there's a fan of your show that I love so much. Who is Who? that? Donnie Wahlberg. So you're, you're masturbating off, to a guy? I knew it. I knew it. You're beating oh, off to Donnie right. Wahlberg. And then we surprised Eric with a visit from Donnie. As part of our on-air Christmas party. And here's the moment we told Eric he was going to get to squeeze Donnie's butt. Eric, it's your lucky day. What if I told you your greatest fantasy is about to come true? What is that? That a certain Mr. Donnie Wahlberg is here, and you're going to get to grab his ass. What? What? What do you think of that? Oh, my God. Is that better than anything in this world? (laughs) Oh, my God. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Mr. America himself. Talk about the Christmas spirit. Wow. Mr. Donnie Wahlberg. Look at the the smile on his face. Yeah, and Eric did squeeze Donnie's ass, and Donnie even let Eric talk dirty with him. Here's the two of them role-playing with Eric as Donnie's wife, Jenny McCarthy. Hey, baby, um, I'm home. How was work today? Oh, work was great, baby. Uh, what do you want to do tonight? I'm not sure. It's Friday night. What would you like to do, baby? I would love to fuck you all night, baby. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Tell him. Okay. Well. My, let's go in the jacuzzi tonight, have a glass, have a bottle of wine, and after that, we fuck each other. <laughs> okay. Uh, 
There you go. Uh, I think High Pitch wants Donnie to come, lady, not Debbie. <laughs> well, that's everyone... what I'm thinking. I mean, can we experiment? And if Debbie can't get anything out of Eric, can we switch out a guy uh, for Debbie and see what happens with Eric? Well, everyone assumed High Pitch's obsession with Donnie meant that he was gay. And Eric insisted he wasn't. Eric found some creative loopholes to justify his feelings, if you remember. So if you were Jenny, would you eat Donnie's asshole? Oh, absolutely. That's oh, how in love you are with him. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I, I, now, are you gay? I'm not gay. No, but, he's but, saying but if he was he Jenny. If he was Jenny, I think, right. I think he's I being a very if, honest if I person. I was Jenny. But how, I'm not really gay. But if you're Jenny, <laughs> you are. Right. But it's only an acting role as me as Jenny. All right. Okay. So you wouldn't do anything to Donnie as Eric. Right. If, Donnie, if Donnie wanted a blowjob, Eric wouldn't do it. Right. Bullshit. But if, if, and the blonde wig. Let me is, ask you something. And the blonde wig is Jenny, then it would. Because it's, it's an acting scene. Can I say something, Eric? If you are gay, it's no big deal. I mean, I, I'm not gay. So what if you are? It's I'm not fine. gay. Really? Yeah. <laughs> okay, but it just seems like you want Donnie so bad. You know what gay is? Yes. What is it? When you love another man. Right. But you do. I know, Robin. <laughs> It was confusing that day because Eric it said, was. "I'll put on I'll put on a blonde wig and blow Donnie," uh, because he's right. acting doesn't mean acting. you really blow the person. Well, you know, you talk about great actors; those are the ones with the full commitment. You know, and, uh, <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, That's we were Academy so hungry. Award caliber acting. I mean, you always ask the question, "What's is Eric going to be able to perform? We were so hungry for answers that we had our lie detector guy Ed Torian give Eric a lie detector test to get the truth. And even that was completely all over the place. Do you want to have sex with Donnie Wahlberg? Yes. He was truthful. Uh, okay. Do you want to have sex with John Stamos? Yes. I feel like the test is over. <laughs> he was truthful. Are you a homosexual? No. He was deceptive. Oh. Uh, well, I don't... Honestly, it's like... A, I don't believe that. Like, how did that come out as deceptive? All right, all right, all right. Let's continue. Do you want to have sex with a man? No. No, he's deceptive on Deceptive. That. Right. Uh... Eric, I think we're starting to see a picture form. A pattern. A pattern. Do you think penises are gross? Yes. Yeah, he was truthful about all that. All right. Mm. Have you ever wanted to kiss another man on the mouth or lips? No. He was truthful on that one. Really? Yeah. How could that be? I don't know. <laughs> the machine had smoke coming out of it. That's what I know. We broke I the know. machine with him. So, you know, he wants to have sex with John Stamos, but he's not gay. And I, I don't understand it. But there Does you go. Does he That's not your intend to kiss John or Donnie when he's having sex with them? I think he just wants blowjobs and things. But, but Sal, anything else you can tell us? This is going down in March. The Debbie's I just meeting feel, up with Eric. I mean, the more I hear about this, the more I feel like, uh, you know, Debbie should get a refund for that hotel room because I, I don't. <laughs> you I don't, don't think it's happening at all. <laughs> I feel sorry for Debbie. Yeah. But everything yeah, is well, in the works. Debbie's on board. She's very excited. Joe is, is coming in from California. He's excited. He thinks Joe as well thinks that Eric is indeed gay. Right, also. right, right, yeah. right, right. Well, so, well, it's see. interesting. Anybody here believe that Eric is going to be able to perform for Debbie to come lady and deliver what she needs? Anybody? 
Oh, I guess not. Okay. No Robin, no sound. No, There's no, no action in this uh, contest. Yeah, <laughs> All right. I'm going to take a break. We're going to talk to Bob Odenkirk, who has done it again. He has written a book, and it is quite good. I'm in the middle of it, and um, it's very, very good. We'll talk to him about that and some other stuff. Comedy, 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 drama is the name of the book. And it'll be available wherever books are sold. Oh, my goodness. I am so embarrassed to belch like that in the intro of a noted actor and comedian. I hope he's um, not listening. I hope. Hopefully he was adjusting his headphones and didn't hear that. <laughs> Bob Odenkirk has written a book. Not only is this guy famous from Better Call Saul, not only is he famous from uh, Breaking Bad and that fabulous movie where he uh, is an action star. Isn't it called Nobody? Nobody, yeah. I've watched it like 10 times. I love that yeah. movie. But uh, he now has a new memoir called Comedy, 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 <laughs> Drama. <laughs> which sums up your life because you're mostly comedy, Bob. I know. But you're also, you know, and, but you're also dramedy. Well, I was I mean, very drama. concerned, Howard. <laughs> I, right. I was very concerned about... Uh, People in airports going, oh, that actor from Breaking Bad. Oh, what's all this crap about comedy? When did he ever do that? I never heard of any of that. So I wanted to label it so they'd be warned and wouldn't return it. There is the book. They're you know, warned. I, I got to tell you, I am so jealous of the way you open the book because I wish I had opened my book this way. I'm going to tell you, this is one of the best openings that you know it's very hard to start a book to like like you don't want to be cliched you know what i mean you don't want to be like uh you know gee i don't know what to write for the beginning of a book but here's what bob writes dickens melville odenkirk all have faced the same query and only one has failed melville call me ishmael talk about giving up I love that. It's great. <laughs> really great. Oh, man. Thank you. Uh, I thank loved you, it. Howard. Hey, look at us. A couple of authors talking. This is NPR. Somebody, yeah, who would have thought? Somebody thinks they're listening to NPR. <laughs> it's so great. High pitched you know, Eric and then uh, authors chatting. I love that's it. What I, that's what I love about this show. That I was like, I wonder if Bob's listening to High Pitch Eric, whether or not he can come with a woman. And, oh, man, uh, I, you, know, you know, I love it. I'm in fact coming here today. I was like, am I going to get to sit where Beetlejuice sat? <laughs> Absolutely. You are. That's the legendary chair. Did but anyway, it's good to see between you. his visit and mine. First of all, the, la the last time I saw you. Oh, I should mention. So I had um, Ben Stiller on the show yeah. on Wednesday. And he said to me, because you guys worked together uh, for so many years and you guys know each other and there's such a history between you. But he said to me that you guys uh, were having dinner. We did. Wednesday night. And so it went down. You did meet with Ben. Yeah. Is it weird because of the pandemic? I mean, what's the rules? When you go to dinner, you went to a restaurant with New ben? York is really loosening up. It's amazing. My wife and I were walking around. We went to a restaurant last night with my daughter. And uh, I can't believe it, Howard. It's it, the people, the energy in the streets. Um, you know, people are wearing masks uh, often. Uh, I wear a mask a lot of times because I want to pull off this book tour and not get COVID before right. it happens. 
But uh, it's pretty amazing, man. It feels it feels a lot like we're almost back to before the pandemic. Uh, at least it did last night, walking around the streets. And Ben and I met for uh, a meal, and and the restaurant, you know, it was great. I mean, you have to show your vaccine proof, and that's it. But wow, it was really great. I loved seeing Ben, and it's amazing to think we're both um, hacking away at it still. <laughs> was Ben uh, one of those guys that was amazed when you were going to be in an action film? Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. all my friends, I mean, I, you know, this thing was so weird. And you're, thank you again for supporting the movie, Howard, for watching it and telling people Loved how much it. you liked it. I, oh. the whole thing was such a risk. Honestly, I thought that movie was never going to get made, and I was just going to get free exercise lessons out of it, <laughs> just free But, but, but what's amazing about it, Bob, is that it not only worked, I mean, in, in during the pandemic it was released into, uh, it made 55, some, something like $55 million. Yeah, Howard, it did now. really well in pay-per-view, too. Like, it did great. Right. And uh, wow. the thing is, you know what's weird about it? It's hard to talk about to say it but i'll say it which is it's weirdly a personal movie for me it for an action genre movie it's a genre movie there's no russian mobsters in my life you know (laughs) but it's so the the feelings inside it and i I think i shared with you that i actually had some break-ins that were really disturbing to my family uh issues that we still have to deal with in our lives and will for probably the rest of our lives. Um, so it, the sort of impacted feelings that the character has, those are real for me. And, uh, at, at where the movie starts, the first act. And so it's a, it's strange for this genre action movie to be maybe the most personal thing I've ever done. Yeah. And you were believable in it. And I think what you're saying is, you talk about this in your book. In order to be funny, you have to have rage. And man, you know, you have to be angry. And I know that. I know it because, I, you know, like my wife takes a walk with me. I was telling Robin this morning, I, my wife takes a walk with me and I'm filled with anger. I do a monologue. <laughs> I'm looking at people and there's tr- intense anger and viciousness. And she goes, oh, my God. She goes, where does this come from? Goes, it's, it's, it's just unbelievable. But it is it is true what you say in the book. It, that it, all of this well, comedy comes from some sort of anger. Look, the maybe not prop comedy. <laughs> right. You don't think Carrot Top uh, was angry? I mean, I think he's angry, but I don't know if his, <laughs> his jokes, I don't know if he's mad at items, things in the world, and he needs to ridicule them. Uh, right. But it's really, it, and by the way, it's so great because I got to steal a quote from Eric Idle's book. I was like, I wanted to say it, but I'd much rather if, you know, somebody from Monty Python said this was comedy with anger in it and it, and it called to him. And then you said it. I didn't say it, but, uh, I think it's true. You know, I mean, for me, that's at the core of it. And sometimes when everybody breaks down these cancel culture issues and sensitive topics, I mean, how can we how can comedy not approach sensitive topics? It has to. But, you know, that movie, I responded to it because, um, first of all, I love action films and I love revenge. I love when when a, a, a seemingly weak guy turns into Superman. Yeah. 
and beats the shit out of everybody. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I could watch that over and over and over again. It is so good. I had so much fun. And you know, I know it, but it surprises me that you like action. I, I didn't know you would even well, be into that. Mostly I make fun of action movies in my career in comedy. I mean, David Cross and I once did a whole night where we showed Steven Seagal movie and made fun of it the whole night on mics. And <laughs> what, was I, the, what was the fun of it? Was it that oh he was heavy set and he looked like he could barely yeah. lift his leg? Or, <laughs> you know, you, Job you, of you, the hut. Yeah. Doing, you, you, <laughs> in a, a gi. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think he really, though, is a karate master, Steven Seagal? Uh, I mean, yeah, he's got... The, he, he. I think he does... First of all, he's very big guy. I mean, he's literally large person tall. And so that automatically gives you an advantage. But yeah, I think he learned all those techniques and he was probably really good at them. And, right. uh, and I don't know how much of that you retain if all you do is sit around playing bad blues on guitar and eating <laughs> cheeseburgers. <laughs> but uh, so I don't know now, but, uh, but I'm sure he was when he was younger. By the way, I was there when he hosted SNL, one of the most famous nightmare. Like, can't reshow that show ever. And I even gave Franken shit about it uh, a week or two ago when I talked to Al Franken because Al wrote this scene. If, oh, God. I have a DVD of that show. Let me ask you something. Because uh, you, you, as you were leaving the last time I got to interview you, yeah. I, I said, oh, geez, I, I forgot <laughs> to ask you about Steven Seagal and when you pitched him a sketch that you had written. Or, or something, and you said, Howard, we'll save that for the next time. Well, it, it was Hans it, and Franz, right? and we were talking to him about I was helping with Hans and Franz that week. Yeah, I didn't usually help with that piece, but I love those guys. And, uh, and, and Seagal read it, and he said, if I do this sketch, if I do it. And, you know, they, they want to fight him. Hey, we'll take you on. He goes, if I do it, I have to beat them up. <laughs> like he has to it's like a john wayne thing right like right, they, right. like he's got the win. most ludicrous scenario you don't <laughs> worry no one will think that they actually no one's thinking anyone beat anyone up here but uh that was his attitude the whole week was he kept saying i've never seen your show i don't know what you do here like, really? You've never seen Saturday Night Live? <laughs> Where do you live? <laughs> and he kept saying, you know, it was, a, it was like... It, it sounds like thing. it sounds like the man could suck the humor out of any situation. Oh, In other words, the funny and he thing wrote a scene, Howard, Howard. He, he wrote a scene, and it's the last scene in the show, and it's like one of his movies, but they tried to do it live. They got some stuntmen to come in. It was, it's insane. So got, there's like this board of directors. There's a bunch of stuntmen in suits. So as a, as a viewer, you're like, who are these actors? They're not in the cast. And they're, and then there's like some speech, and then he enters the banquet room and starts beating. It's live. And he's beating them up and throwing them around the room. And the audience is mystified. And it goes on for like eight minutes. It's the longest scene you've ever seen. And then at the very end, on Saturday Night Live, he turns to camera and says, 
that's what you get when you mess with Mother Nature. <laughs> ah, just like in the movie. Remember the one where he goes up in front of the United Nations at the end? And he's, he's, he's defending American Indians. He's defending uh, the environment. And uh, he makes a big, long speech. Why do I? But you see, you see, you're a fan of these uh, the action genre. I love these Stevens. Yeah, I movies. know. What is, Listen, you know what I mean? You know, it, well, it, look, come on. What movies can be is is your dreams acted out for you and you right. get to celebrate that. I mean, my wife had such issues with me doing this movie. Oh, my God, Howard. I <laughs> trained for two and a half years and I had to because I was a comedy writer and I wanted to do my own fighting. And uh, and every time I would go to the gym, which was way down by the airport, so it was already an hour drive to and back. And so I'm eating four hours out of the day. And that means I'm not helping around the house. Right. right? So uh, I'm walking out the door and I would look across the room and she would just give me a look like, what the fuck are you doing? You know, this is the worst midlife crisis ever. But um, you were committed, though, man. You know, that commitment. Dude, I, do you think I haven't spoken to you about yeah. this since your last visit, but do you think all of that intense training and everything contributed? Yeah. To your heart attack. You had a oh, heart no, attack. Oh, no, I don't. In fact, it saved my life. Um, I, I uh, Look, the, what really saved my life is I had a heart, and it's really technically a heart incident, although I would have been dead if somebody hadn't immediately screamed and gotten someone there to give me CPR. CPR saved my life. Rosa Estrada, um, uh, Angie Myers are the two people who got going on, on CPR for me and kept me going for 25 minutes until an ambulance arrived. And who are uh, these people? Are, are these people? Uh, who... Rosa is the health officer for Better Call Saul. Luckily, Howard, we were, we were, uh, shooting in the studio that day because if we were on location, which mostly we were, I wouldn't be here right now. And if I had so gone when you to... do, when you do Better Call Saul and you're at a studio location. Yeah. They have a health expert standing yeah, there's by. An, there's offices right there, and our health officer who had so much work to do, Rosa, had to run the whole COVID protocol scenario, ah, which got right. us through the whole season. She's there in her office working hard every day, and she was a medic uh, who did a, at least one tour uh, in the armed forces, and, and she knew right how to do CPR properly. Luckily, she probably was out in two minutes to to my uh, to where I was and started CPR and she also had an AED in her car because we had no those are defibrillators yeah and we didn't we didn't have any of those on the set which we uh, everyone should have those if you have old people like me around <laughs> <laughs> but uh, she had one in her trunk of her car. And uh, so after about 12 minutes of CPR, she handed me over to some of the other people who knew CPR well. And she ran to her car and got the defibrillator. And it took three, three uh, attempts to get me um, to a rhythm, which is actually a lot, Howard. I guess I don't I don't know any of this stuff, but I was told later that um, when the defibrillator doesn't work, once that's not good when it doesn't work the second time that's kind of like forget it but then they jacked it up a third time and it, it got me back to a rhythm 
And, uh, and they, and so that was what saved my life. And then I had surgery in the morning at uh, Presbyterian hospital in Albuquerque, great doctors. And they put the balloon through and yeah, yeah. I mean, right through here, you can't even see it anymore. And they went through and knocked out these little pieces of plaque that had broken off and blocked my widow maker. But we were talking about nobody. And one of the things that saved me was, I guess I had, uh, I, these were great workouts and I learned how to work out. I really did get a, a great benefit from training. And, uh, because I was in good shape, you kind of enlarge some of the, um, other veins around your heart. If you work out a lot and right. I had done that. And as a result, uh, I w I was told that, um, more blood was able then to go to my heart during CPR because these veins were just a little bit bigger from a lot of uh, a lot of working out. And wow. uh, so that helped me. But also recovery wise, I recovered much faster than I think a normal person who wasn't exercising so much would um, because I, my body was already in good shape. So and you didn't have covid or anything at that. I point. didn't have they covid. Didn't, no. um, and I also knew about this plaque. I had been to two heart doctors in 2018. And, you know, people who say, oh, the vaccine caused it. I mean, just Bullshit. calm down. Bullshit. Right. And right. I knew I had this. One doctor said, you need medication right now. The other doctor, who had done more extensive testing, said, you're going to need medication. You don't need it yet. And where I am really felt uh, my fault was not following up. I walked out of his office going, great, I don't need medicine yet. But I had no plan for two years from now. I'm going to come back here. We'll check again. I should have definitely had a follow-up because really he didn't say you never need to do anything about this. He just said, yes, you have plaque buildup. No, you don't need medicine yet. And mm -hmm. and and I just, you know, so some lucky things happened. I, I I had trained and I did the movie Nobody and I was in good shape. But most of all, I was near uh, my co-stars, Ray Seahorn and Patrick Fabian, who ra rushed right to my side and um, Ray held my head and Patrick grabbed my hand and they were yelling at me because I guess I turned gray like right away and uh, stopped breathing. And, and they were just yelling and yelling. And those studios are so big that the crew, which were at the other end, you know, initially thought, I don't know, someone is laughing over there or, you know, it took a few seconds, maybe a minute or two for someone to walk over there and see what was happening. And then everybody kicked into gear and we were lucky to have a couple great people who, knew, and by the way, take CPR classes because uh, you can save lives with them. Uh, people save mine, so. So in other words, instead of being an actor who arrogantly, because he's the star of the show, goes back to his trailer between scenes and stays in his trailer and says, don't bother me, because yeah. you stayed on set, yeah, it saved your life because your fellow actors found you. They yeah, absolutely. If I'd gone to my trailer, I would not be here because they also don't bother you when you go to your trailer. They let you right. be an asshole if you want to <laughs> be one. I, I'm not, but... That it, I don't understand some of the stuff that goes on around sets still, but they knock on your door and if you, as long as you yell or something every once in a while, <laughs> they know you're in there, 
they don't bother you. They don't open the door. So, like, that's why when you hear about, like, whenever you hear, like, oh, he stayed in his trailer. We can't get him out for half an hour. I'm like, (laughs) open the fucking door and tell him to get his ass out on set. (laughs) Like, I don't get it. But there's kind of this rule, I guess. You're not supposed to bother people when they're in a trailer. What is that? Yeah, that's that private time. I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> you're working. Uh, I don't get it. I mean. I don't either. You just, know, that's that's why your book's good. It's a book about who's an asshole, who isn't an asshole. <laughs> but he, like even with the Steven Seagal story, you know, I mean, your disdain for certain people. I mean, you know, when, when you were just telling the Steven Seagal story, just to get back to that for a second, it probably baffles you to this day that like why did lauren allow the producer of saturday night live why did he allow this guy to hijack the show and take (laughs) over for eight minutes the show is bigger than steven seagal he didn't need steven seagal yeah but you know what i mean by the time you get to wednesday what are you gonna do but it would be funny if he booted him on a thursday and just did the show without him (laughs) i've always wished there was an episode a year where it was just the cast you know especially back then i loved our cast so much uh, Dana Carvey, Phil Hartman, Lovitz, um, and eventually it was Spade and Farley and Sandler. And that was my time there was, uh, uh, those sort of two casts as, as it went into Chris Rock and Farley and Spade. Um, but before that, um, Dana, Kevin, Jan Hooks, Nora Dunn was there when I started and, uh, yeah, I loved all those people. I wish they could just shine more, like just have the show. Because sometimes the host would like, it's just annoying. Like, right? you know, they're not, they don't want to do that. They don't know what they're doing. And just this great group of comic actors who are awesome. Let's let them do the whole show. But, That's you know, right. it is well, what it I is. I mean, the- you know, my whole, all the chapters in SNL are really about how, it wasn't the show I wanted it to be because it isn't because it is what it is. And I just couldn't come to terms with that. I I you, was like, I read the book and I said, this guy is so conflicted about Saturday Night Live. I could talk to you about this for hours because on the one hand, you get it. And I think in a way you diplomatically handled the subject of Lorne Michaels. You let us into the fact that like even when you were a writer there. The guy could have made you more comfortable, but he would he would he would push you away. He wouldn't let you into certain meetings in his office, yeah. like, and it bothered you because you were looking for a confidence boost. Yeah, that you you can't do good work when you work for someone who you think thinks you're not funny. You know that's this whole thing, and I'm and at the same time, how can I be anything but thankful for Lauren's generosity to even hire me? And and the learning that I did being around that show for four years, I learned so much about writing a sketch and um, I didn't get to put it to much use there. But later I did. I felt great about the sketches I wrote at Mr. Show and other shows that I've done since. And it's all because of what I learned at Saturday Night Live. And so... Um, but yeah, that that thing that you see because you interview a lot of people who've worked there, that thing of people being off balance emotionally the whole time they're there. Yeah. I don't understand the value of that. I don't see why that makes a better show. I, I actually think it doesn't, but 
That's my you opinion on it. You, you, you know, you, you handle it in the book so well. There's so many different stories of that period of your life where you get this shot being on Saturday Night Live. Yeah. And a whole bunch of things struck me. The one story, oh, sometimes work can be so fucked up. I worked at NBC for years. And when you said, gee, when I got to Saturday Night Live, you were there visiting uh, Smigel, I think. Yeah, you went yeah. to see him. Yeah. You said the place looked like an insurance uh, company. Yeah. And you're so right. When I worked at NBC, there was nothing more life-sucking out of me. <laughs> In terms of, I'd be there for hours writing my show, doing funny bits, whatever I thought was good. Yeah. But you're in the, this building that has absolutely no heart or soul, yeah, no right? Vibe. It's, yeah. it's, it's weird. It's that so Saturday weird. Night Live. Yeah. You'd think no, that just almost, just by accident, it would get, you know, people would leave their mark and change it. But it just, I couldn't believe it. It was like temp, temp offices is what it felt like. And for some insurance company where I'd, I'd actually worked in temp jobs uh, like that. And, uh, yeah, strange. Yeah, I remember I remember getting there my first day and going, this is the building? Oh, God. <laughs> and I remember all the disc jockeys would go in the... Um, fire exits and do their cocaine and and, and weed and all their other right. shit. it was like a drug den the the um the fire exits were more creative than the actual <laughs> offices you know where yeah. all that shit yeah. was going yeah. on it was crazy it was a crazy <laughs> building and you just can't believe it the other thing too this whole bullshit kind of um system that got started where the writers have to stay there at four in the morning what the fuck whose idea was that that was because of cocaine. We weren't doing cocaine. Right. And maybe if we'd had cocaine. Where was the cocaine? Howard. <laughs> <laughs> There's no cocaine in this fucking book. I was so glad you wrote about that because, you know. Even I when I was doing it, Howard, I was like, what is this doesn't feel right. This doesn't seem. I, w I was like, what are we writing between 2 a.m. and 8 a.m. that's any good? And truthfully, Robert Smigel could occasionally deliver a beauty at in the even at that hour, but it was horrible. And I remember Spade; it was his first year. He'd been there for like five or six weeks, and uh, and it was a a Tuesday night, which we would stay up all night and write all night. And it was seven o'clock at night on a Tuesday night. And Davey goes, "Well." I'd love to help you guys with that, but I got to go home. And I, I looked at him and I said, what do you mean you got to go home? He goes, yeah, I, I have to sleep. I, I have to. Like it was a medical condition. Right, like, and right. He, and like I, I'm human. And then he, yeah, and he walked away and I thought, well, I have to sleep too. <laughs> I have that same <laughs> disease. I have the same thing you've got. And, uh. But he could do it. I, you know, I couldn't do it. I was like, I got to help. I got to be here. I got to be part of this pain. But it was so dumb. It was so dumb. So Nothing dumb. Nothing good came from it. It brought me back to when I was a boy growing up. My, my dad had a recording studio and he had four partners. Mm -hmm. And, and um, the, guy, the, the partners were musicians and things. And my dad was just a working guy. And they'd say to him, hey, man, let's order dinner. We'll stay here tonight. We'll do a late night session. And my father turned to him and said, I am willing to give you a day's work. I, I own this business with you. I will come in at seven in the morning. I will work till five o'clock at night. But I need to go home and be with my family. 
and I need to get some rest. I don't want to be here all night. I'm, I I won't be able to function, and I can't do it. And he put his foot down. He drew a line in the nice. sand. And it's and I said to myself, he was so right. You know, yeah. you you can you get sucked into other people's bullshit, and suddenly because you have to go home and go to sleep. You're disloyal, and you're not a good yeah. writer, and you're a fucking enemy of the of the of the. Well, process. you know, Howard, it's the, this is a precarious business, showbiz, right? You always feel like I'm only here out of the good graces of I don't know strangers. I I, I there's no. I'm not doing. There's no thing I'm doing. <laughs> I'm not right. helping society at all. Of course, you are. You really are, but it feels like ephemeral and like. It's just not a meaningful, and so you just think that the that that pressure from everyone around you um, is is it's. I think it'll sway you more easily and pressure you more easily. It was uh, brutal. Those, you know, look, I write about SNL a lot. Everybody, there's been so much written about it and talked about. People get hired there when they're young. It's their first job. They're very intimidated. Nothing is done to reduce that intimidation. It's crazy. It's Nothing. Like, the heartbreaking story for me is you're a young writer, you get hired there, and you you describe, you go into one of these pitch meetings First right meeting, away. Yeah. First meeting, and Al Franken is one of the senior guys there. And I love Al Franken. I think Al Franken's responsible for tons of funny stuff, yeah. and I love them as a United States senator and yeah. all that stuff. Me too. But the the viciousness. Why? Like you said, why, why, why? Yeah, I start so, with an idea. This is true. This is really true. I had flown in on People's Express. You remember that airline? <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. Very and, safe. And I, and, and I said, I want to pitch an airline sketch where they, it's called, like, I don't know, just everybody's plane. <laughs> and it's the cheapest airline, and they don't have destinations. They just go in directions. <laughs> and And there's, like, you know hay bales and there's you know it's like a train in india <laughs> people sleep on the roof or grab hold of the wings and uh and al i just this is the most obvious simple sketch you know it couldn't you know it couldn't be easier and more obvious and it kind of relevant because people's express was a thing it was a thing that someone was going to have a plane that was cheap that a ticket was cheap on and right. um and uh and he just starts asking me why, but angrily. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, so it's a really, uh, you know, it's a airline that's got really cheap tickets. Why? Oh, I don't, well, like I flew on People's Express. It's super cheap. Like they don't have like food. So this plane doesn't have any food. And in fact, you have to doesn't bring, even have a chair. Doesn't have you chairs. Know, why? Why? Well, because they're saving money. And, and, you know, like people, like I said, like they don't go in a, to any place they go to a, de a direction why and you're it's your first time there and this is al franken and he's well known you know i knew him yeah. i watched franken and davis shit when i was first watching snl i don't know i thought it'd be funny i thought it, it could be funny why why would anyone do that and he was so mad at me <laughs> <laughs> and all and you're I trying thought, to do shit i'm well not you know funny. Al famously got dumped on because he was a real young guy when he got hired Saturday Night Live. Yeah. And when he first started writing, they used to shit all over him from what I remember well, maybe the stories he was just I heard. Paying it back, paying it forward. 
paint it forward. Oh, my God. But, you know, in I the mean, end, Al saved my ass because I struggled uh, always there. But in my third week, I helped him with a sketch in a fundamental way, a really a great sketch that he had written with Tom Davis. It's a really great one where Phil Hartman plays a guy walking through a subway car asking for change. At first, he seems like a bum, which was a term of the time. Uh, and uh, and then he gets to the end of the car, he gets some money, and he goes, that was a performance. I'm a, a, actually uh, uh, I'm actually in a theater company, and I'm doing a show where I play a bum, and I wanted to practice. If you like what I did, give me money. And he keeps going back and forth with different excuses. And I was... I. He had four people walking through this train car, and I said, what if it's just the same guy? And he just keeps changing his story. And Al was like, that's a great idea. And he rewrote the sketch and gave me credit. And right. I had struggled as a writer, and I guess one of the head writer uh, asked Al, you know, why would you put Odenkirk's name on this? Did he help? I think they were probably wondering, can we cut him early? <laughs> yeah. Get rid and of Al, this guy. Al stood up for me and said, yeah, he came up with the core, you know, turn of the sketch. And so whatever it was, I really appreciated that. So Al, you know, Al's Al. Yeah. And I was yeah, so happy I when I know you don't want to talk about Al all day, but I was so happy. Sure, I do. When he went into politics, it was me great. too. I thought he was a brilliant senator. Yeah, I feel horrible about uh, yeah him leaving the Senate. Yeah, but uh, what a what a tremendously talented guy. Yeah. And it's yeah. and it's so true what you say about people, especially you know, look. I love your book because I love reading about successful people and I love reading about their failures. I love reading about their climb. It's, it's hard. Such an int- it's, it's, it's hard not to write like- about failure. It is. And you were very brutally honest about it. Uh, even Al Franken sitting there and saying, why, why, why? Because I said, you know, if somebody asks me to defend what I think is funny, it's not funny. Yeah. You can't defend it. It's either no. you get the joke or you don't. Yeah. When you break you know. a when you when you dig at any comedy idea like that, I mean in the end you're going to end up with nothing. You're just going to end up with because it's funny. And if you, you know, don't think it's funny, then I guess no. But, here's what I got to ask you. Um so you've been very vocal in the book as well. You know, you talk about your friendship with Chris Farley. Yeah. Who really, the more I watch this guy, especially his, not his sketches so much, but even his appearances on Letterman and uh, Leno at the time, which is so brilliantly funny. He was such a naturally likable, funny guy. I didn't know him. but um, Yeah, but you it, did it, know him a little bit, Howard, because everybody who saw him perform got a little piece of his soul. I mean, yeah. that that was the thing about Chris that was very special and uh and undeniable and made him made his potential even so much greater than anything he'd done uh that we that we got to see or that we can see on tape i mean he could have done drama and done a really beautiful job with some some parts as time went by if he'd stayed alive and i i know he would have and uh but everybody got a piece of his soul, like right away, like within 20 seconds of seeing him. And that's just, you know, that's rare, man. And and that it comes through the screen. But that was true in real life. And, and it comes through the screen, too. Like you just saw this guy's heart out, you know, it held was out e- for you. Unbelievable. And I mean, it was heartbreaking when you write about the last time you saw him. He was in a limo with, as you say, a bunch of people you wish he hadn't been with. It looked like his hanger honors 
were in the limo with him. It was him. the worst, Howard. It was the and he was doing blow, worst. right? Even in the limo. And yeah, well, I didn't getting... see him doing blow, but the guy in there was tried to give us blow earlier in the day. Um, uh, the person who was in the limo with him. We were at, we were at um, the Aspen Comedy Festival, and uh, we were doing some Mr. Show event, and we had a party at a bar, and uh, somebody came in and said, Farley's out back. He wants to say hi to you. I guess he felt weird about coming in, probably because he was very always he was very aware of what he looked like and how people were perceiving him, and uh, he was pretty off the rails. He was way off the rails at this particular event where they were also having a Saturday Night Live reunion event, and uh, I'm sure people had been telling him all weekend, "What the hell is going on with you, Chris? Go to rehab right now. You shouldn't be here." Don't go off with those people. I'm sure he was hearing that all weekend. And uh, so he didn't want to come in. So I went out back. This limousine window crack comes down. And Chris looked worse than I'd ever seen him. I mean, just like if you is just red and sweaty and engorged. And uh, he just looked so terrible. And and we just had a nice chat, and he was out of it a bit, and in the in the limo with these people who, again, one of them was uh, trying to distribute cocaine. I've never done cocaine. I uh, never. I, think done I tried it. it once. It didn't do a thing to me, really. I, yeah. I think that this story was I was in college, but it turned out it was heroin or something, something stupid oh. like that. Yeah, <laughs> it was crazy. I didn't know what I was doing. Well, it must be great, I guess. <laughs> I don't know, but I have no interest now. But, um, yeah, but uh, you know, it was just terrible. And the worst thing about it all, Howard, was uh, my dad was an alcoholic, and I was around and came to understand alcoholism because of that, uh, um, even as a teenager. And uh, that feeling of inevitability that I write about was the worst part of it all. Cause you love this yes. guy and everybody loved him. I, I'm not special in that way. The audience loved him. And, and like I said, had a feel for him and a personal level, even in a performance, you got a feel for his soul. And, uh, that horrible feeling of like this goddamn story is just going to play out in the corniest fucking way. That any that even Chris could have told you, even Chris would have told you, this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to die and I'm going to be 30. By the way, 33 when Belushi died, same age, like what the fuck? Like if I had a general goal in my life, it was don't be a cliche, like try to do something that undermines the dumb, obvious, you know, route that you find yourself in whatever that is you know if you're in a bad relationship and it's not getting better don't just let it crash and burn after many years get out and move on move on from that cliched bad route that you might be on you know whatever it is you know try to undermine it um and and to see that happen is heartbreaking and uh you know, I I think you see a lot of people talk about Chris. I imagine younger people who hear all these stories about Chris wonder, what, what was this guy like? I mean, you know, he was a silly, funny performer, but 
I guess I feel like if you watch him, you have to see what we're talking about. All the, all the people who knew him, you have to see that piece of his heart that he brought to everything. Yeah, you always um, were critical of that sketch, the famous sketch with uh, Patrick Swayze, where Chris gets up and uses his belly and his body. And the the joke basically is he's fat. Uh, And you didn't like that. You felt it was uh, demeaning to Chris. Yet, I was wondering if you make a distinction, because when you worked with him early on, you were part of the writing of that sketch where he um, was raised by a school of whales, which I think is funny. It's like uh, almost like Tarzan being uh, raised. Actually, I didn't wild. help write that, Howard. I was in that sketch because it was playing at Second City, and I was brought in. I, I see. I, uh, so I didn't write it. but Right, but did you have a problem with that because no. Chris is... But no, uh, right? Because I'm trying I gotta to... I got to say, understand. Howard, that, yeah. that Chippendale sketch is kind of unique. Chris didn't feel like he was on sure footing at SNL yet. That was the first big sort of present moment for him. So if it hadn't been the first one, that might have made it a little less egregious to me. But it was. um, I got Maybe it's just me watching it, but I always felt like that moment where he pulls his shirt off, there's almost a hesitation I see in his eyes. And, And even the the smile or the kind of expression on his face. I've, I just get a a queasy feeling that he knows a good chunk of this reaction is because of my body shape. And, uh, he's a loving, he's loving the laugh. He's loving the reaction that he knows he's going to get because he got it anytime he did that or anything like it. But he's feeling like he will, you know, Chris would walk around saying, I'm going to use words you're not supposed to use. I'm a retard and fatty fall down. He would say all the time, he'd fall down and say fatty fall down and, and things like he would refer to himself with the derogatory terms and so just that moment, I just hated that moment. I still do. I wish it hadn't been the first big thing that happened to him. And I don't like that, you know, people pretend that somehow the big laugh from that sketch was uh, the concept of it, which was the judges can't really say why Patrick Swayze is a better Chippendales dancer than Chris Farley. I Yeah, I get it that that's the joke, but... There are people, the audience is responding to his physical. Um, in in your mind, it's a cheap laugh. And also, you. And also, it told Chris exactly what he shouldn't be hearing, which is that's why you're funny, because you're stupid and big. And right. not, you know, you. The that's not why he was lovable and funny and worth watching and worth being around. Uh, and it just it just sent that message. It just. It, it was a bad uh, exchange. And it I, I felt I've always felt bad about it. I've always felt like it was a not the right thing. Yeah, you know, and he seemed to signal you that he knew exactly what was going to happen to him when you write about the um you're walking home with chris and he was drunk and um and then he you know he was tossing furniture and blah 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 blah. and then chris suddenly stops and turns to you and asks if john belushi is in heaven (laughs) like it it was you know which is eerie 
he was kind of hung up on that. Like I'm very hung up. Belushi. It. It's he inevitable. would talk about it a lot. And uh, and in this moment where he was extremely drunk and really opening up, you know, some part of his psyche, that was the question in his mind. Do you think Belushi's in heaven? Mm. And uh, there's a lot of problems with that question for me. <laughs> well, first, yeah. there's no heaven. But second, <laughs> You're right. Let's get to that. Yeah. <laughs> second, I don't think the people from earth whatever are existing as some version of themselves walking around and that you can then talk to them and play chess with abraham lincoln <laughs> right it's such a childish i guess we all need the inevitability of death that we're all gonna die no one gets out of here alive right yeah and so so you sit here and you go uh oh god i need some kind of story to cling to i can't yeah. ponder my own my own demise and yeah. never exist again. It's, it's too, it's too much. Yeah. You know, so. um, the, um, again with Chris, the thing for you, it, uh, you know, it's, I felt kind of sad in the sense that when you were at Saturday night live and you didn't feel here, you are a guy who believed he was always funny. You, you know, from when you were a little kid, you would perform in school. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You would get up and read. You were always silly, pretty sure that you were a funny guy. And then you get to Saturday night live did you ever feel like screaming and saying to these people who, I am funny? Just yeah, yeah, I, right away. The first time that, that meeting with the, the writer's meeting, I remember thinking, I wanted to say, look, I'm not a pro yet. I got a lot to learn, but I'm here for a reason. I thought of the whole country. I got asked to join you for a while want to give me a shot you want to listen you know maybe help me maybe tell me how it could be better you know like you well i don't get it you just asked me to come here and then just shit all over me and like i i and i tried to proceed with that sensibility when i went forward and worked with uh on mr show and the birthday boys and many other shows tenacious d and uh tim and eric that sense that you know, a young writer, especially if they're doing something new, is probably finding their way, right? They're, they don't come fully formed, right? So they got right. something kind of funny about them. Or, you know, I talk about Tim and Eric in here, and I don't know how familiar you are with their work, but they're big fans of yours. And uh, they've done some really funny stuff uh, over the years. And uh, it's that ability to just see some young voice and go, there's something good here. It'll need some time and you got to approach it. You got to kind of be supportive of it to help it, you know, focus. And uh, the, none of that shit happened at SNL. And I don't think it happens still. I don't the know. Guy you, the guy you, one of the guys you point out who you admire was Sandler because yeah. and I get this. Yeah. He came in a newbie yeah. and his attitude is like, hey, I'm going to be silly and I'm going to be loose as a goose. I don't give two fucks what you think yep. of me. Yep. I'm going to pitch my ideas. And you said uh, you said you had an epiphany. Oh, that's how you do it. This guy, right. this guy's loose. Yeah, and yeah, 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 yeah. Neurotic I was about it. crawled all up my ass trying to break the perfect sketch, you know, and it's kind of yeah. cool. I think that we cared uh, about sketches. You know, it's a weird thing, Howard. It's yeah. just like, you know, I really did and do. And love really a great little comedy sketch. I just love it. Um, Eric Idle's uh, 
um, Say No More. Uh, do you know that one? Uh, oh, you write about you write about Python. You write about you, it's so funny. So many things I responded to. You write about Peter Cook and Dudley Moore being yeah. a big influence on you. Yeah. I remember my parents took me to Broadway. I saw <sighs> Peter Cook and Dudley Moore right do that Tarzan bit live. Right. You know where Holy they, they hop on yes. the one for the one legged yeah. Tarzan. You know yeah, he's thing. auditioning for Tarzan, right? But you make the bigger point. Like here's a kid from Chicago. Who, you know, there's no show business in your family, but yeah. you have this dream. You don't want to be a stand-up comic necessarily. You want to be a guy who writes funny sketches and right. performs in sketches. Yeah. And if you think about it, this is, you got me thinking, this is why Saturday Night Live is such an important thing. Where the fuck else are you going to go professionally yeah. to there's perform nothing. sketches if you're sort of um, irreverent? And yeah, of course, this was a huge gig for you because yeah. where are you going to? What other shows could you go to? Yeah, to there, was this kind of there was nothing. There was nothing, and no sense that there would ever be anything else. There was only four. There, was, Fox had just started as a as a network, so right. there was like, you know, no sense that there would ever be another opportunity. So that made it even more of a a mind fuck because if it doesn't work out here, if I can't make it work here. Well, that's it. That's over. My try at this thing that I love is over if I can't make this work for me. Um, uh, I love what the situation is now with so many avenues to do a show. Um, and people can do like Tim Robinson's show and things like that can exist now, which didn't happen back then. We well, the the show that really saved you was uh, Ben Stiller doing a show. Oh, yeah, right? Ben. I mean, and Ben and I shared an office at SNL for the short time that he was there. I don't know how long he was there, like four shows or something. Yeah, uh, four shows. But, you know, but this goes for Ben and 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 sort of it's sort of like the Sandler thing you were pointing out, but obviously different stories because Ben had a confidence that came from growing up in the business and growing up around his parents who were uh, – Stiller and Mira, a famous comedy duo, and seeing how the business worked. And uh, he had a drive and a confidence, and I'm sure he would argue that he wasn't that confident. But compared to all the rest of us in our group, he was. And well, you beat yourself up because you say, you know, Ben is in a different situation. Ben knew to leave after four weeks, but Ben also had the security blanket of when you come from a show business family, you think it's possible for normal people to get into show business. Right. You didn't come from that. Right. And, and then that was interesting to me, too, that you really did not. And I think grateful for this in the book. You didn't spend a lot of time on your alcoholic, horrible father. Um, you could have done a chapter or two on this guy in terms of your family background. And I noticed you kept out the women in your life. There's no sense of there's a little sense of romance that you had a. a you had a longtime girlfriend. Yeah. Uh, then you had uh, a, a brief little thing with Janine Garofalo. Yeah. yeah. But for the most part, there were a couple you, others in there. But <laughs> those. Are yeah, the but you didn't. Ones. You didn't dwell on that, which some guys would. Well, I mean, and, Howard. I mean, I've read a lot of showbiz bios because I like them. They make me, me laugh. Too. I I can read anybody's. I've I think I've read two Van Halen. <laughs> memoirs. Me too. Me too. memoirs i read anything about musicians and comedians yeah. and their their climb their struggle i love it yes me too and i know what you were thinking i'm not going to spend a lot of time on my father because you know those are the chapters you can't wait for them to be over you want to read their show business climb 
Well, I got to say, yeah, yeah. I I read, I'm not, I don't want to drop names, but there's, I don't want to shit on anybody, but there was a memoir somebody wrote and it was, and it, it only took you up like to their first break in showbiz. And I was like, yes, they were going to like, what the fuck? <laughs> Who was it? Who was it? I read that and I got on the air and I complained about it. Um, well, I didn't get the payoff. I didn't get the, yeah. the, the cum shot. Who was it? Oh, you're going to make me say this. Because I, no, I, I know I it. Think it. I said it on the air. Who John was it? Cleese wrote uh, oh, no, it one wasn't that John only Cleese. took you like to Python. Right. And because I heard he wanted to write a three three books about three his volumes. Life. Yeah. <laughs> three <laughs> volumes. Like it's Winston crazy. Churchill. I, I can't I, do but, that. you know, I liked uh, what Steve Martin did where he took it only up to where stand up no longer was a thing he could do. Right. I like that. that. That was beautiful what he did. And, Amazing book. But, Perfect book. But, you know, we're not presidents of the United States here. We're we're just people <laughs> who hacked away in showbiz and got a few breaks here and there and made something out of it. And just I, what I wanted to do. And I, by the way, Howard, I didn't write about all my failures. I wrote about one third of my failures. Because right. when you're writing about a show that no one's going to see, no one can see doesn't exist uh, except maybe as a script but took a year of your life to write and sell and develop and then it went away i mean it's hard to write about that shit because it just doesn't mean anything to anyone uh but but how do you not look you've been a success your entire career <laughs> not really i know but yeah, but you you have yeah. the great movie in your first book that tells about your climb, your 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 journey to success, and yeah. and it's really great. And that movie is amazing, and you are amazing in it. Thank I've watched you. that recently. It's just great. And wow. uh, but you you know we're not you know we don't need to tell people about our childhood that much, except what mattered. And what mattered to mine was my dad was a fucking drunk who wasn't around, and was torturing us all kind of with his uh lack of presence weirdness these lectures i would get as a kid we're out of money who tells a five-year-old hey come on in here i gotta talk to you <laughs> right we're gonna run we out need... of money in a week or two oh, that's what he would what say a horrible man what a and horrible i would just man. stand there going i what should i do what can i do I'm Why five. do you think he did that? Do you, yeah, you do, like, 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 no concept that a kid is going to be scared out of their mind when they hear that. No concept, and like, uh, hey, I'm going to lay my problems on you. Like, you're the fault. We have no money because I had you. Um, and so, here's a guy, yeah, poorly thought out man. What seven kids, right? And uh, no way to pay for them. Seven. Oh kids. yeah. No, yeah. No, I don't know what, dude. I can't. By the way, one of the reasons I didn't write about him much is I don't fucking get it i don't know what to say i don't know what he was thinking or what the plan was or the backup plan or nothing it doesn't make any sense to me and uh i you know i i was lucky enough to see him again before he when i was 22 i got a phone call that he was dying and that i hadn't seen him in five or six years and i i got to see him and i thought this is great i'm gonna get to see him i think he was a complete mess and an asshole, but maybe I'll meet him now. I'm 22 
I'm not a teenager anymore. Maybe I'll meet him and I'll go, okay, he's a good guy. He tried. I, I, I can't. And uh, it was kind of a relief to meet him and go, oh, no, he is a fucking disaster. <laughs> like, I don't relate to that guy at all. What was your game plan going into that meeting with your father? Did you have specific uh, I, questions? I, yeah, I was just going to listen to him, share what I was doing, l- just really give him a chance. I'm going to really right. give him a chance to share something with me that would make me say, oh, okay, you know, I see what you loved or cared about. I mean, by the way, it wasn't one meeting. I, I got to see him over four or five months, and he passed away. He had bone cancer. And uh, and and my mom did a wonderful thing. She allowed him to come home and mm. spend those five months with the younger kids in my family because they had Crazy. never seen him. I mean, they had never seen him. How and, magnanimous of your mother to do that. So great. I mean, that's So I mean, great. And the kids yeah. just got to sit with them and do stupid stuff. They'd watch TV together and just those little, those, that time must have been a good thing, a real good thing for them. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I'll tell you what, Howard, I walked in the room. This man is dying of cancer. And I remember within five minutes, he was bitching about some person who bought a fancy car because he got a promotion that he didn't deserve. And I remembered my dad, you know, was very obsessed with other people and what they got. And some guy who's a fucking asshole and he's he's got a, they just made him president of the company. He doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. His head's up his ass all the time. Right. Like, right. What are you're telling me about someone I don't know. I don't, there's nothing to do with us at all or what's happening in your life. I mean, just, I, I just don't get it. I don't. And I, the level of anger. You said he could go from zero to 80. Yeah, well, and, I kind of you know. have that, and I put it to uh. use in nobody. <laughs> <laughs> you sure did. <laughs> he really and, did. And, and, you know, it really is a little bit strange, but uh, it is just this weird kind of fluidity of, of emotion that you can jump to some far place quickly, and it's useful as an actor. Did he ever come close to saying he was sorry to you? No. Did he ever? No. Never. Nothing. No, 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 no. These no, guys no. He are never looked at me and he never looked at me and said, what are you, what are you doing? What are you doing right. today? What are you up to? Not once. Why do you have kids? Do you, I always ask myself. How, how about like this, that. Howard? Why? Do, how do you have seven kids that way yeah. with that attitude? All right. You make one or two or three <laughs> kids and then you go, gee, I have no interest in them. <laughs> but then he has four more. You know, it's like a, it's a wacky game plan. Oh, uh, dude, man. It was uh, I guess time. on some level you just kind of go, well, I guess I'm grateful because at least he gave me a life. But, uh, <clears> geez, <throat> you just can't figure the guy out. I, and you said when he died, it, it, there was no emotion. There was yeah, no... Yeah, because, you know, you know, listen, if if when I'd gotten to see him again at this, you know, this denouement, this epilogue time in his life, if we'd connected, obviously, I, I think it would have felt terrible. And uh, it's hard not to imagine, you know, if he saw some of the work I'd done that maybe he would have said, oh, I like this show or that movie was great. But, you know, whatever. Daydream yeah. crap. I mean... Yeah. You think a lot of your drive was to one day say to your old man, look what I became. I know that was yeah. my my sort of Well, it's weird fuel. to, you know, look, I the idea of being angry at uh, the older generation over time, you 
you get old, you you see things happen, you struggle with things, and you gain sympathy for other people. You gain empathy right. for people who had problems with alcohol or or any number of things, and you start to realize maybe even mental illness was part of something that initially you didn't think that was a, a part of the mix, but then you realize maybe it was. Um, I I I've got to say I don't feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I didn't develop this to, to sympathy. Uh, I uh, I'm as pissed off today as I was when I was 14, and I had the great luxury of pushing him out of the house one day. And, Is that uh, right? It yeah. was the it was the pushing him out that really that felt that, great. It's empowering. Yeah, and I think you know, obviously, we all shouldn't be violent in real life, but in a movie. Uh, I tell you, it's one of the reasons we love action movies, right? There's so many things that you have a a physical urge to respond to, and you really can't, and you shouldn't. And then, you know, you get to see a movie and act out the fantasy and watch that, and it's fun. There's so so many great things in your book. I told you, I love any kind of climb, and you're so good at writing it. Um, Even there was one line you had. I forget what you were pulling. You had some job and you pulled into the lot. Maybe it was Paramount. And you say, this is the line you said. I hope I don't fuck this up. You go, I pulled into the lot where Gilligan's Island was shat out. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I mean, it's so true. It was shat out of somebody's mind, Gilligan's Island. Your disdain for, like, shitty writing and, and, you know, your disdain for Saturday Night Live. You you know, you you were like, hey, the first five seasons were good. Nothing's ever going to equal that. Fuck these guys with their their shit. Uh, Oh, you know what? There's something I got to ask you about. You're, when you go in to get the job and you have a meeting with Lorne Michaels yeah. and you take and I was this, an asshole. You, yeah. Oh my God. But this approach of yours is so wacky. You went in and said, this yeah, guy Howard. gets his ass kissed all the time. Yes. I'm going to go in and tell him how fucked up he is. I know. Thinking that would turn him on. And he'd say, Hey, look at this kid. He's some <laughs> comedy writer. He's got a set of balls on him. This is who I'm looking for. And of course he didn't hire you, right? He, he, well, he did eventually. Eventually. Which is unbelievable but, that he did. Uh, I mean, God bless him for it. I mean, really, I am so thankful to Lauren. I really am. And, and I wish I know you are. it wasn't as un- an imbalance, you know, this thing that you talked about of the feeling of you don't know where you stand. I don't think that's necessary. I, I wish it hadn't happened when I was there. And it doesn't seem meaningful to me, but, um, but yes, I went in, I had my long wait, which everybody does when they're waiting. Let's talk about that. Don't, don't blow by that. Cause when I read the book, I said, I got to ask you about that. You're there to get a job interview. You're told you you have an interview, be here at 10 or one or whatever. And you waited two and a half hours outside. Yeah. Come on. I mean, I know Lorne and, uh, you know, I, I admire all of his accomplishments, but taking a young kid and making him wait outside your office yeah. for two and a half hours. Yeah. What, what, this isn't the Navy SEALs. We're I don't not, get you know, it. like, you, I you, don't your get time it. is important too. Yeah. What is that? What What's is going it? on? Well, if it's unintentional, that's maybe a little bit understandable because he's a very busy man. There's a lot going on when you try to produce that show. But uh, but if it's unintentional, it seems like it could be straightened out over time because I'm the, everybody has this experience, Howard, everybody you talk to who, who's ever worked there. Um, and like I said, I have a friend who I think set the record at a six hour wait. 
Um, Who's that? I I don't want to involve. <laughs> I like to know names. Stop it. <laughs> but, but you know what I think it is? It's to test to see a how bad you want the job. B if you're willing to, you, are you going to be willing to spend an all nighter there? That if you're willing to maybe, wait outside his door, yeah, maybe, maybe that's there's some it. psychology, uh, purposeful psychology to it. I I don't know. Here's what I know. I'm sitting there, thinking, thinking, thinking. This is this is a huge opportunity for me, and I'm thinking. If I go in there and kiss this guy's ass, tell him, oh, it's the best show ever. You're so great. It's a, he's not going to want to hire me. That's like a fan thing. That's like, don't, don't do that. I'm trying to get somebody to work here. Somebody who takes this seriously. And, uh, so I go in and, uh, you know, Lauren is, how do you, good to meet you. And what do you think of the show? I don't know. It's not great. It's not going great. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you like? I like Python. Monty Python is the best. It's the height of of this form. And uh, blah, blah, blah. I also like, you know, uh, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. And I like, you know, the credibility gap, which you may be familiar with. Love their, I love their work. Mad Magazine, uh, but, for but, sure. Yeah, but right? this show, this show, not so much. Uh, and, you know, and Lawrence being like, well, I mean, we're considering, you know, would you like to work here? And I'm a fucking, I'm not even a waiter yet. I am a right. runner. I take food to the table. I don't <laughs> even wait. Yeah, I don't get. You're not presentable enough to wait on people. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I'm like, mm, yeah, you know, I don't know. Maybe, like, maybe I'll work here. And I don't think this show is very good. I was uh, standoffish. I thought he, I don't know. I thought, Interesting look, approach. here's the thing. He gave me the job. How crazy is that? Hey, so, and by the way, you mentioned your third week in, you, even though you were insecure and you couldn't yeah. get anything going, you did write, I thought it was a great sketch. I love that John Lovett's character where he was oh, the this, actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and uh, yeah, that sketch that, was, uh, I, I, I wish I could, this is how crazy I am about sketch comedy still, Howard. I wish I could go back and rewrite that sketch and have John do it in a, I could write a better version of it, much better. But it was, it was the wow. master thespian and he's, uh, the Macy's Santa Claus, but he's treating the role <laughs> like it is a grin and he's in the bathroom putting on his beard and stuff and guys are peeing behind him and he's preparing himself, talking in the mirror. And then, uh, it's a great idea. And, uh, I wish I could rewrite it. Because I could do so much better. Uh, you mean I, you go back and watch that, and uh, you know artists do this all the time with painting. Um, they 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 look at a painting. And go, oh, I should have done uh, more red or more that. You know, like oh, they, they it, it was uh, very clumsy. It. it could be much better, like way better. It's a good idea, and John is funny in that character. So whatever. It's just you you um you learned an important lesson writing that sketch, and I love this. You point out. So here is your first sketch you get on Saturday Night Live, and you, you know, you become the producer of that sketch, and you're standing yeah, there. Yeah, it's pretty great. And and you stand there with yeah. Lorne Michaels, yeah. and Lorne says your character is in the bathroom. There's no echo in the bathroom. Yeah, and he's screaming and yelling that there's no echo in the bathroom, and you're running well, it around. It started with this, Howard. I'm standing behind him, and he goes, he's watching the dress rehearsal version of the sketch, and he goes. Where's the fucking echo? And I don't even know if he's talking to me, because what does that mean? Where's the fucking <laughs> echo? And I'm just standing there, and he goes, 
Where's the fucking echo? And I go, I go, excuse me? He goes, he's in a bathroom. There should be fucking echo. Uh, okay. I don't know where to go to do that, but, you know, there's a sound booth and you go tell him. I mean, like I say in the book, how about where are the fucking jokes? <laughs> <laughs> and your point in the book was the echo did absolutely nothing for the sketch. And you're yeah. you, what your takeaway was, you learned, don't stand next to the boss. <laughs> While he's watching one of your <laughs> sketches. And you want to know something? I relate to this so much. I remember it was a point in my radio career. I used to run into my boss's office after every radio show. He, he, he hung out with me. I was very impressed with myself that he would hang out. Mm. And he would begin to psychologically torture me. And finally, after months, I went, I am never going in that office again. Yeah. He, he's making me feel shitty about myself. Yeah. It, you you got to be really careful when you're trying to be funny. You don't yeah. want you, you don't want people fucking with you all the time. Yeah. Well, it's hard to give notes and be supportive but be critical at the same time. So, I think that was uh, Lauren's challenge. Another thing you remind me of in the book is that I've forgotten one, my favorite television show, one of my favorites was The Larry Sanders show. Mm. And that's right. You were his agent on Yeah, there. Stevie Grant. A great part and uh Love being around that set. I mean, but, you know, Gary, as I share in the book, he took it so seriously. And and it's <laughs> the reason the show's so great. But also, you know, you've, I felt bad for him. I mean, it just couldn't be it. All, it just couldn't be as good as he wanted it to be. He just it just was never going to be. And uh, that's not good either. I mean, we're all making it up as we go along and you put lots of uh, preparation into it. And I'm certainly on shows now, Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad, where so much preparation goes into these things, so much forward thinking and rewriting and rethinking and uh, every detail is going over. um, And, but you can't, it's not a perfect thing that we're doing. There's alchemy, you know, there's people trying stuff and you have to interact with all these different characters and personalities and talent levels. And so it's always going to be you're hoping magic happens. And uh, I think Gary's standards were so high. It was hard to, I, I just don't feel like he could enjoy, um, what he achieved. He, he did a great job. The show's great. I always tell this story. I appeared on that show as myself, like a small thing. And uh, I sat there for, I don't know, I was going to appear on The Tonight Show after do, taping my little bit. And we're sitting, we have a scene in his living room. And Gary's sitting there talking to the director going, I want to eat yogurt when I'm talking to Howard. But why would my character be eating yogurt? Should he be eating yogurt? Why would I be eating yogurt? Then they come over and they start telling because maybe I won't eat the yogurt. And yeah, I said, well, there you go. Uh, I, I said, Gary, I got, I got to leave. I got a, I got a other thing to do. And so then he, he got off it. But I see what you mean. Yeah. It was torture. That was it. For the yeah. Guy. Yeah. Every choice job. he was drilling down on every choice, but to a place like where he could never find the bottom. He could never. It seemed to me fine. I was commenting in the book about a lot of times I would see him switching out lines. And uh, and I was like, 
uh, that last line was actually better than the one somebody just pitched. And, you know, a fresh line is always going to get a reaction because it's fresh. It's new. It's the latest pitch. And that doesn't make it better than two pitches ago. You got to have a separate sense of of what's good and what's just new. And uh, and it would just kill him. Anyway, it's a great show. I'm proud to be a part of it. And people should check it out if you haven't seen it. Larry Sanders show. But um, yeah, I wish he could have had more fun. Judd did that great documentary on Gary that really lets you in to the to the struggle that he had trying to be himself. Judd Apatow's another guy you mentioned in the book. Uh, yeah. my, I guess you met him around the time of the Ben Stiller show. Yeah, maybe? yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And you said you were kind of a, um, you were kind of not great with him, right? You have regrets about how you handled. Yeah, him. I mean, I was really critical of everything, Howard. I don't know how I left SNL, went to LA, but with an attitude of like, okay, I got this. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> like after the struggle of SNL, somehow. I left with this incredible confidence. You know, my last year at SNL, I was doing better. I was contributing. I was helping people structure sketches. I understood how it worked. And so that that felt good. I could see that I was gaining some traction, right? Right. But I went to L.A. with real confidence. And, and uh, you know, it's that showbiz thing of people kind of buy into that confidence. You know, um, if you walk into a room and go, I know what I'm doing. People go, all right, he knows what he's doing. <laughs> You're so right. I've seen it. I see it with young directors who have directed nothing, and mostly men. They yeah. they walk in right out of film school or something, and yeah. they act like they know what they're doing, and they get a gig. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, it's they, weird. You know, they could fail with that and often do, and then right. they can't pull that little trick off anymore. But it's an interesting business because you can pull that trick off a lot longer than maybe you justified and. Anyhow, I went to L.A. feeling pretty damn good about what I'd learned, and and I was excited to uh, to put it to use somehow. Well, you ended up putting it to use on the uh, Ben Stiller show for yeah, sure, and that was a really interesting little uh, crew. Andy yeah. Dick was brilliant on that show. Super you were fun. brilliant on that show, yeah, and and Janine Garofalo, right? She yeah. was in that show, yeah. and, and Ben, and and uh, he and put Judd. you guys on that, and in a way, and Judd, and and you kind of figure. You guys won an Emmy over Saturday Night Live. Yeah. I mean, the show was short-lived. But yeah. in a way, that must have been a real victory for you. Huge like, victory. It was a big right? deal to me. And, uh, you know, I had left SNL two years before and to, to beat the SNL crew for the writing Emmy. And I thought we had a shot, too, because I remember the episode that was submitted for the Emmys and the, that we were nominated for. It was just a great episode. Um, and I thought it would work if people gave it a shot and watched it and they did. So, um, yeah, it meant a lot to win that. Yeah. The, the Cape Munster sketch stood out and the, yeah. the, the sketch you were in, and I think you wrote it as well was the Manson uh, Lassie, Charles Manson, Charles Manson is Lassie. <laughs> so great. Oh, Manson, you know, it's like, <laughs> Manson. That's a great sketch. Uh, yeah. Uh, I love doing that. Uh, that Isn't one it amazing? Out, yeah. it, 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 what was amazing to me is your dream as a little kid was to basically be in sketches. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. you know, you, you built a really solid career doing that. And yeah. then, of course, the miracle in your life of Breaking Bad comes along. You described you were bankrupt, literally yeah. bankrupt before Breaking Bad. Like yes, you were tapped I was. Out. 
which is crazy. Um, crazy. Because I don't spend money, and how the fuck did that happen? But what happened was I spent some time making some feature films. They weren't great. I didn't get paid a lot for them. I enjoyed directing them mostly, um, but I didn't really have direction. I didn't have a vision for these things and this journey as a director. I loved doing the job. It's a fun thing to do. You're envisioning yeah. the whole story. You're casting, you're choosing the camera, you know, lenses, the angles that tell tell the audience what matters in the moment and and you're you just you're the storyteller and it's a wonderful feeling and a, a great great job, the best job probably on set, I would say. On the other hand, you know, I kind of like, I don't know what I, I don't know what my vision is there. I like a lot of different things. I just haven't, the way I studied sketch comedy or the way you loved radio and went into radio, you thought your brain, even when you weren't doing it, your brain was like tossing it over Always. in your head, thinking what works, what's good, what, what, what should I hear more of, what could be new. You're, you're doing that math without trying. And that's right. what I was doing my whole life. Up until, you know, getting to do it on Mr. Show with David Cross. And and so I didn't have that with when it came to directing. I hadn't done that work. And um and I still haven't done that work. I just don't think about that job like you should if you want to direct. And uh so I somehow got in this financial hole and uh got this phone call one morning from my business manager saying you have to sign this loan mm. to keep afloat, you know? And I was yeah. It was a weird call, Howard. I had little kids, uh, and I was, you know, life was pretty good, and I'm doing these jobs and developing stuff and directing some movies, and and I get this phone call from the assistant at the business manager, and she's like, hi, I need you to come in and sign for a loan for this. Uh. I'm going to say the number. It It doesn't tell the whole story, but. We need to get this uh, $900,000 loan. Oh. And I go, what loan? Oh, you don't know about this? No, I never heard anything about a loan. Oh, 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 okay. I'm going to have someone else call you. And she hangs up. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> and I go, and the panic. what the fuck was that? The panic is horrible, Dude, and also I, you start grabbing at any job, and then and that's when you get into that weird spiral well, of taking jobs. That yeah, you I went to I went to a different business manager. That was the first move, and right. he was a great guy who I still work with. And he said, uh, "Look, just look at it this way: money is money. Whatever you can make, somebody offers you three grand. If he offers you three hundred, make that money today. Bring some money through. That's all you got to do. If you just do that, we're going to be okay." And uh, and I proceeded to to live that way instead of being my picky, you know, uh, snooty self. I just said, look, works work. Let's do it. Let's act, direct, make stuff. Whatever. I pursued uh, I pursued uh, commercials. I directed some commercials. I had a good time doing it. You right. know, um, it was a good way to go. And then I get a phone call. They're going to offer you a role on Breaking Bad. This show, Breaking Bad, not a popular show or a big show at the time. Right. And, and, and don't say no, my, my agent says. <laughs> and I was like, dude, I haven't said no in a year and a half, but maybe you didn't <laughs> notice that. Yeah. But, 
I still checked it out. I still wanted to know what the hell the show was. And I called a friend, uh, somebody I'd been writing with, Reed Harrison, and he goes, oh, that's the best show on TV. you got to do that. That's the best thing there is. And, uh, yeah. So Why did I, they offer it to you? What did they see you in? Dude, it's a good question. I guess Mr. Show. Um, wow. I thought it was Stevie Grant. Because, you know, there's a similarity between the scammers there, these two scammy guys, uh, Stevie yeah. Grant and and, uh, and Saul Goodman. But um, uh, but no, um, uh, Peter Gould, who wrote the first script featuring the character of Saul, and, Be- and, and, and Vince Gilligan, who ran Breaking Bad and wrote that show and also helped create Better Call Saul with Peter, they were huge Mr. Show fans. You know, Mr. Show... Is a, is a sketch show I did with David Cross for HBO and rock bands love it. You know, they always, rock bands were always on the forefront of cool comedy, right? right. Cause they were the ones passing around Derek and Clive CDs and, and cassettes. Uh, and they were the ones passing around Mr. Show VHS cassettes. And so it uh, got you the gig. And, so and, it, uh, they were watching Mr. Show sketches in the Breaking Bad writers room because they just loved the, the show. How great when you don't have to audition for something. Like oh, that. man. Like, you know, yeah. you just get the job. Yeah. And then let me. Is this something? And by the way, there career? again, the confidence you get. And gives you the power to do a good job. The right. confidence, you know, what you were talking about earlier, that thing of just that first baseline level of confidence that someone has in you, that maybe you can do this job. It means a lot to, to feel yeah. that. And it's weird because you had done mostly comedy your whole life. And all of a sudden, these guys want you for a dramatic role and they believed in you enough to do it. But let me ask you if this plagued you your whole career, because this plagued me. Whenever I go to a new radio station and start, I would lose my voice. I, I would have a horrible laryngitis. I lost my voice doing Saul the for the week but, before but you we played, started. But here's the thing: when um, in Breaking Bad, you played Saul for yes. all those years. You yeah. didn't lose your voice. No. But then when they gave you your own show, Better Call Saul, yeah, you lost your voice. Was totally. there a psychological uh, yeah. sort of thing about it that I have to now carry this show? And I just yeah. came off Breaking Bad, yeah. and I want oh, it was, it was like huge. oh my god, Howard. Yeah. I, look. I try to diminish this, you know, like compartmentalizing. Oh, fuck it. It's just an acting role. Just do the job. Do the job well. Don't think about it's the lead role. Don't think about it's number one on the call sheet, all that crap. It's just another role. It's a bigger role than you're used to maybe. But just do it. Just act, right? You know, prep the material. Think about the character. Develop it and and show up and, and be great. And, uh and and that's all you can do and uh but the truth is you know i'm yeah it intimidated the hell out of me and uh and and part of it was because they'd written so much dialogue for this guy uh saul talks a lot and so if i was that first season i'm talking all the time i mean i'm talking through pages and pages and pages of dialogue and it was uh it, it it was a lot and uh and the weirdest part was some part of me because i'd been in so many failed projects for so many years some part of me was probably just thinking well you're going to do this but no one's ever going to see it they're just not right. going to show it <laughs> right but because a, after breaking bad i remember when they said oh there's going to be a spin off called better call saul everyone was like what are they crazy yeah. why are they fucking why with success with that? 
Yeah, why mess with it? Yeah, but I then, Howard, when the post, when the billboards went up, that's when it hit me. Oh, no, this isn't going to be some forgotten, unseen follow-up. <laughs> Everyone right. in the world, because Breaking Bad just was this juggernaut in the last three seasons. It was got so big. And even after it stopped, I mean, for years even, it was be getting bigger and bigger. And when the when the billboards went up, sorry about that bump in the mic. Um, when the billboards went up, that's when it was like, everyone is going to watch this. If this doesn't work, right? oh, my God, everyone in the whole world is going to know. And they're going to talk about it forever. Remember that shitty sequel they tried to do <laughs> yeah right and everyone's banking thank god it worked out i mean oh my oh, god oh man uh, that's what sucks about show business like you get the stink on you from after breaking bad and if it doesn't work out all of a sudden the whole world's looking at you and oh yeah, that know, guy ruined you know the what, franchise Howard? yeah but yeah. part of that is how you take it right like yeah. whenever i see actors be too sensitive or directors about something that didn't work especially people you like Part of you wants to say, fuck it. The thing didn't work. Just do another thing. Don't worry. It's okay. Everybody can has. Can you do that? I mean, can I do it? Yeah. Uh, I can pretend to do it. <laughs> That's right. I can lie to myself. Yeah. But it's kind of a lie. And the, the thing about it is that feeling of failure or frust, you know, it lingers inside you. Um, but it's really true that again, as a, it's a business that, yeah, um, feeds like a shark on on anybody who's dying, on anything that's dying around you. But it's also a business that's excited to see something reborn or see somebody rediscover themselves. I mean, one of the things I was lucky with with nobody was, I did all this comedy, but it was cult, cult, cult level popularity so i didn't have to worry about people struggling to re to see me in a new light it, it wasn't that many people who knew the the comedy that i'd done and loved it it was uh, i was lucky that way because it can be yeah. hard to get people to see you again afresh and i think one of the things that was great about nobody is this there's a bit of a trope there of a regular guy who can kick ass. But in my case, I was able to pull off the regular guy, which a lot of action stars, when they play Damn. that role, you're kind of you never really buy into, oh, he's just a schmo. He's just like me. Is there going to be a sequel to that? I think there will be. We're working nice. hard on one. I do. Oh, think I hope there so. Will be. Oh, I, I love that. You know, That'll the challenge so is great. the guy popped, right? He blew up. In in his world, he exploded, and I think we found a clever way to to make something out of that, make more story out of it. But um, but what matters to me, Howard, is that one of the things I just think we pulled off in Nobody was you 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 saw that family, you saw that break in, you saw the house they lived in, you saw the cars they drove. You you went yeah that that is a that's not a Hollywood real guy that's a real guy, right. and you know how Hollywood when they try to do he has no money, <laughs> it's still more a bigger house than anyone you know has. Yeah, I mean uh, you know, and, and the it's guy looks still, like Keanu Reeves. Yeah, you know, it's still it's a, a nicer house, a cleaner house, a bigger house. 
And I think what we did that was so great was you went, no, he really does look like my neighbor. He right. That really does look like the house he'd live in and the car he'd drive and the coat he would wear. And And I want to keep that. I would like, if we get to do this sequel, and I think we will, I would like that identifying feeling that the audience had, I think, where they go, that is my family. I, we could be doing this. And then when it goes off into the genre and, and he gets to act out and and do all this great, violent, fun reaction stuff, I then you get to go on that ride with him. And you feel yeah, like and he, and he ends up being Superman to his family. Yeah, I love yeah. that moment. That's that's what you got so right. You yeah. know, when the guy reveals himself as yeah. being this and don't you want guy. that from your kids? Don't you want oh, that? Especially yeah, from thing. your teenage kids. You can't yes. wait for one day. One day they're going to look at me and go, you're pretty cool, Dad. What you did. <laughs> and I, it doesn't happen. I, I realize what you did now. That's pretty cool. When I think of the story of your life, if you were going to the pinnacle, to me it would be that scene in your life when you feel like one of the Beatles because you went to Comic-Con and Breaking Bad is in its, you know, final season, right before the final season. And you see, oh, my God, I uh, they love me. They really love me. The, you know, it must have been an incredible moment. Howard, it was incredible to be around that. It didn't feel like a vindication of me. I, I very much felt like an ex, like a, a part of this bigger thing. And it was a wonderful thing to be near it. And I actually looked at Aaron Paul and Brian Cranston and Anna Gunn and, and, and Dean and Betsy. And I looked at them and said, they're the ones doing this. And I, I get to be close to it. And that's great. It was really fun. You know, what was a vindication for me? My son came to me. He was like 12 and he goes, he looked, he was sad. He was bummed out, but he goes, dad, you're in. Breaking Bad, um, Tim and Eric, Mr. Show, you're in all my favorite shows. Wow. And he was bummed out because what's the worst thing you can think of when you're enjoying <laughs> something that you love is your fucking dad's head shows up. Yeah. <laughs> hey, was, but look. I was liking this. But and look now how you're your son here. But look how good it is. Look how you felt about your father. Look how your son. Oh, man, it meant so much to me. Um, when you, that, but when that's you were, the high point is when your kids, yeah. when your kids recognize. You broke the cycle. Yeah. You broke the cycle, Bob. Yeah. yeah. Who do you go to when you are down? When, when you had your failures, what, 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 how would you cope with that? Was there someone that you could let off steam to and talk to and say, geez, Maybe it's not even your wife because yeah, no, you want her to want see to you. <laughs> no, she doesn't want to hear it. And she also doesn't. Maybe you're in your mind. I don't want my wife to see me this way. Yeah. You know, is there is there anyone in your life who has been instrumental in holding you up when things were bad? Uh, Howard Stern. <laughs> really? I thought so. That's what I was going for. I uh, knew it. No, you know, seriously. Howard, I don't. I don't know. I'm sorry to say I don't have that person. I. I have a lot of friends in comedy. Um, I think I, I think I cracked up a little at that point that I, that you mentioned in the book. The truth is I did crack up a little. I didn't keep it together entirely. Um, but I always had this weird faith in this business. Wow. 
because I didn't grow up in it and it was so foreign to me. And yet somehow I knew when I started, I remember being in Chicago and thinking, this is a, this is kind of a great business for longevity. If you can, if you can be up for taking risks and reinventing yourself and doing the work, I recognize that show business was a place that does love to rediscover people and but you have to be careful of bitterness. And that was what that was my number one thought in that time period that you brought up was don't get bitter because you right. just fucking, you know, you're working out, you're walking, you're hiking, you're writing, you're thinking. And it's so easy to just go, fuck this fucking thing. I'm getting screwed here. Again, this thing that I talked about with my dad, you see other people succeeding. And if you live in Hollywood, you got billboards everywhere. You go to the fucking dentist office and there's variety. And you got to sit and wait in the dentist office and read about a friend or an enemy making a, you know, big contract or whatever. And yeah, because I could imagine for you, it must have been great when Breaking Bad got big and Better yeah. Call Saul and... Nobody, even those guys you worked with at Saturday Night Live, even Lauren, all them, it's probably great to say, see, I am one of you. I'm, 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 I've arrived at this yeah. party. I'm as big as you guys. You, you know, know what I mean? It's weird. It, it's, I never needed that. I just needed to make a living and do stuff that entertained me. I think one of the things about the book and it's, I may be something I should be embarrassed by, but how much I, pursued entertaining myself like how much of this business and what i'm doing including nobody is really just about me making myself laugh <laughs> yeah and i think that's healthy i mean uh you know people try to get into show business and please everyone else it never works the real innovators are the people who are just literally doing what they think is funny yeah or they, I mean, yeah I, they're just on their yeah. journey and yeah that's right I never thought about what, who the hell can predict what the audience. I I said, oh, if I had had a radio show like this to listen to when right. I was in high school, right. I would have loved it. Right. I would have been happy. But right. it's crazy. The book is fabulous. Uh, you know, if you enjoy a great show business story, especially I think if the book teaches you anything, it's like you, you can't give up. You got to have that spirit. You got to really love what you do. And you keep, uh, you know, for me, seeing anybody's climb, especially this one, is really fun. And, and you're a really good writer. And uh, there's a lot of really touching and also funny stories. Bob's new memoir, Comedy, 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 Drama, is available tomorrow wherever books are sold. How do you say Do you go comedy, 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 drama? Yep. <laughs> That's how you do it. Comedy, 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 drama. <laughs> interesting choice i was watching that video of you last night when um comic relief yeah and you and your buddy david cross yeah. come out you know you're trying to raise money for charity and the next thing you know in that sketch you're doing you're totally nude holding your balls and penis in one hand well they and, fit uh, in one hand <laughs> wow yeah i was like gee i can't tell bob have a big penis or not i mean uh, it looks like he's clutching i have something a big hand <laughs> yeah <laughs> i said that takes thank guts. god i have massive hands <laughs> yeah oh my gosh well anyway listen i love seeing you bob has a podcast series called summer in argyle oh yeah that he co-created it's like an old-time radio show howard really yeah like a, um like um in other words a story yeah it's a, a story with a bunch of yeah. crazy characters it's going to be on audible in march it's called summer in argyle it's absolutely the most unhinged thing i've ever done 
It's the silliest, pure, pure, silliest thing I've ever done. The closest thing I can compare it to is, you remember the goon show in England? Yeah. Like something that crazy. That oh, that's great. And, and you of, do that with your son. My son and I wrote it. He wrote it first, and then I told him, if you're willing to rewrite this until you hate it, I will work on it with you. And he Is said that he, what he wants to do? He wants to be yeah, a comedy writer? Yeah, he's a comedy writer. writer, and he's a great one, too. He's very funny. He's way funnier and better than I was at his age. And uh, and uh, so Nate Nate wrote this, and then I just punched it up with him. And we have an amazing cast on that Audible podcast. It's uh, uh, David Cross and Stephanie Courtney and Tim Robinson. And, oh, my God, it's fun. It's fun as hell. It's Paul F. Tompkins, it's great. So. And Bob and David Cross are working on Guru Nation, a new yeah. series for Paramount Plus, where they play rival gurus. Yes. That I like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm there. You can count on me. Great. I'll be watching. And uh, really get the book if you enjoy um, uh, reading about successful people and their climb. Uh, Bob's done it all. He's done every shitty job, and he's done every great job. And he says, uh, fuck you, if you don't like it. Um <laughs> He likes it, and that's, that's the right, right attitude man. to have. That's and the right. final season of Better Call Saul premieres April 18th, which will be a big deal. We're yeah. going to finally let go of that character. Yeah. Are you happy to bury him? Are you happy to say goodbye to Saul? Or um, are you having um Well, I terrible, can't wait for nightmare? people to see this final season. It's great. I think the writers really delivered, and it's so much that happens in it. So... Um, yeah, April 18th, it's, we start rolling and showing it to people. And, uh, um, you know, I, I haven't really said goodbye to it. It's been going on so long in my life. Howard, I've been playing right. this guy for like 15 years. You've uh, been nominated for Best Actor four times, but you have not won. Is no. it time for you to win the Emmy? I was told it, it is time. Yes, I was told <laughs> it, it's time. It seems to me it's time. Who keeps beating you? I mean, I can't imagine. I'm uh, terrific at it. What? Lots what's the problem? <laughs> I mean, let's get on that. Maybe you're not kissing ass enough. I got to start that's kissing ass a bit. Anyway, that's, that's going to be great. I can't wait for people to see it. And, yeah, it's fun to move on. I mean, look, we don't go into this business to do the same thing every day, do we, Howard? Uh, I did. And you know what? When I got something good, I don't give up. I mean, if I was you, I'd do Better Call Saul uh, for the next 35 years. But that's me. Yeah, I want to uh, do I'm, something new. I always want to do something new. So I'm not as adventurous as you. By the way, Better Call Saul has been nominated for 39 Emmys yeah. and has not won one. And that Come on, won. Emmy people. There's something wrong with these people. Let's go. I yeah, don't there's know. something wrong I with mean, these what people. Is going, I mean, you better, you better get on that. I Come don't know on what now. you're doing. And That's what it. about the final show, Bob? You know, because the final show is right. always a big deal. Did you do it right? I think we did. I think that that is a killer ending. Boy, it's good. And I don't want to give away I, anything. I would I say know. that it's not it's not a spoiler, but I would say that one of the cool things about the final season is the two shows, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, have never been more connected than they oh. are in this final season. Are you still in touch with, uh, do you hang out with, uh, what's Brian his name? Uh, Cranston Brian Cranston or uh, Aaron Paul? I see those guys at things. Yeah. Why is I've that? So in other words, no. So in other words, no. Uh, no, in no. Words, I, the answer well, is yes. Uh, no, the answer is no. You don't get, you don't invite uh, Cranston over to uh, the house with uh, the wife and, uh, and we, all that. We aren't that in proximity to each other. Uh, 
I would. <laughs> Why is it? Why is it? What happens? You get so Oh, close. you know, everyone's busy and, you know, we get older and we get all crotchety and all go off into our own corners and feel right. uh, and just, you know, get old and quiet. <laughs> uh, I don't it? know. No, we're all friends. We're all friends. I mean, Stellar, Stellar and you well, I had a great dinner. time hanging out with Ben That's the it. other day. I wish we saw each other more. I did. I don't know. Work, right? You just, yeah. you know, but you, you, uh, yeah, you got to make an effort. So I'm, that's what I got to do too with the, the time that I have ahead of me is try to make, stay close to friends, you know. I had such a good idea for the ending of uh, Better Call Saul. I was going to call you up, but I said, ah, who am I? I What's the idea? Saul versus Godzilla. I like you it. You know, I love it, and and uh, it would be unbelievable. Yes. People would go wild. Of course, they'd have to tell you the backstory of Godzilla and the and his right. traumatic childhood, and, and uh, that's why that he's ability. a monster, because, you know. Right. I was totally wrong on that. Uh, Bob Odenkirk says, check out his new memoir, Comedy, 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 Drama. That's right. And tomorrow's the big day, available tomorrow wherever books are sold. I read it on Kindle. You do whatever the hell you want, but that's how I read it, and I enjoyed it. Thanks so much, and, Howard. Uh, I loved it. All right, Bob, listen. I don't know when I'll see you again, but yes. it was great seeing you. Thank you, my friend. And uh, anything you want to say? Thank any, you. I anything want to say you have, thank you. I want all. to say thank you for knowing all my references. <laughs> oh, I know everything. I, <laughs> I know you Test do. me. Yeah, I, I know. know you do. It's crazy. No, you, you know, you've Not done, so you've easy with some... a career like mine, but uh, mm. you, you've definitely could win that contest yeah i didn't even bring up half the references i yeah, know yeah i left out some like 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 bob reveals in his book that jan hooks is an incredible talent oh, from man, saturday she was night live so funny that, well, that lady <laughs> but she was so wasn't funny. used i know they, they didn't they right why i think she's one of the funniest women who's ever been on there i don't know you know maybe she struggled to speak up for herself i think she wasn't uh able to work the room you know the writer's room she right. made no effort in that part. Um, and uh, I just didn't happen the way it should have because she wow. was so funny. So funny. Unbelievable. I find that. I see. I find all those tidbits very interesting. I lo- I, I, that's what yeah, I love. There's a lot of tidbits in this book. I was going to call it tidbits, but. <laughs> that's a good name. Tidbits. <laughs> yeah. I didn't want it to reflect poorly on yeah. me. <laughs> Why didn't you marry that first girlfriend? I forget her name in the book. Um, Claire. What was it? Claire. Yeah, what Suzanne. happened? It seemed like she was. She was. You know, she it was, was great. It was too much. To, she was great. She's a great person. Um, we were both. Are you still in touch trying, with her? Yeah. She. I. Were, I showed. I showed her all the passages in the book about her, and we talked about it. And she gave me some quotes that I used in the book. Um, Did you ever go to her? You should have stayed with me. <laughs> look. Look now. Look at me. You know, it's a weird thing, relationships and and how they can work or not work. I think we were both trying to make it. And, of course, I had already been to SNL and I'd done some things, but I still, in my heart, had not been able to express myself, do the thing that I needed to do. And so I was striving, and, and, and then she was, too, trying to make it as an actress, and there was just too much yearning in that house. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. That's a tough wanting, re- you know? That's a it, tough relationship it's to not good. Uh, negotiate. It's not no. good because then when one person gets anything, then the other person can't really enjoy that other, the, the partner's success because there's, there, it, 
it just was when I Naomi, my beautiful and amazing wife that we've been married 25 years in a, a week from now, um, uh, she's a manager. So she's in the business, too. She understands all the all the pressures and she's also a very creative person. But we're not doing the same thing. We're not right. both <laughs> trying to get. Yes. Jobs. And as an actor, to have your manager as your wife, it's like almost like having that mothering bosom. Like, I mean, oh, my God, I can't Will think of something more. Will you please tell her that that's what I'm supposed to be getting from her? Oh, by the way, I love. I, yeah, but I'm telling but I, you know what I love? You're, you're, you're a funny man. You go uh, every every Saturday or something, you give your wife a dozen roses. <laughs> And what does each rose represent? And I tell her, just so she doesn't get a big head, I tell her, I'm giving you one rose for each of your faults. <laughs> <laughs> so great. But, yeah. you know, she's uh, she's amazing. Naomi is an unbelievably hard worker and great person and smart as hell. And although she doubted me on nobody, uh, but she doesn't she doubt it anymore. She loves the movie. But, yes, oh, she God. did. That I must mean, have been she horrible. Oh, dude, it was hard. I, I mean, when you, you, the wife who you trust and she's your manager, you know, you know, it's like, oh my God, she thinks this is going to tank. I don't know where you find the strength to keep going. Well, you know one. what? It's, <sighs> I think we both know that we're in this business to take risks. And the thing is, it was such a big risk, Howard. It took years of my life and, right. and it was a lot to, to lay out. Uh, uh, on a on a gamble, but uh, sure was. whatever. It's all yeah, I hear you. It's all, all right. It's great book. Congrats. Thanks, buddy. Thanks so much. All right, there he is, Bob Odenkirk, who probably has to go pish. I'm sure of it. Uh, well, I do. Right? I do. You do. I drank you do. all you this do. tea. Yeah. All right, you go but ahead. I'm good. Then. I'm good. Great to see you. Oh, thanks, thanks for being man. Here. Thanks Appreciate so much. It. Can I just Bob walk Odenkirk. away? They, you know, TV. Shows, I guess they well, don't let you do that. Do you know what? I just looked at the clock and I realized we've been talking for two hours. So, so they, that's are you serious? Kind of, yes, wow. two hours. Of, yeah, we didn't clocked in on a, like two hours, did it? Yeah. Oh, I'm, well, so I don't awesome. know, Howard. I'm sorry. I thought I shouldn't leave while you were still visible to me. Um, all right, right, right. It, all right. So I'll say goodbye. I just yeah. say thank you so much, and really seriously, I I can't thank you enough for how well you know this material, how willing you are to go down side roads which is my whole career is side roads and right. i, no, I, I love can't it. thank you enough really I, you made me comfortable and it means a lot and thanks and, and, and thank you for being here right. i mean Take uh, care. really really appreciate right. it and i appreciate your career and thank you uh, robin a, i can't see it's you but good thank to you. see you Bye-bye. bye there he goes we'll follow you to the bathroom we want to see your fish <laughs> there he goes bob odenkirk uh, Poor man, super talent out of here <laughs> yeah he didn't know how to leave um what a All great right. interview. He's so He's giving. Very giving man. Very talented man. And uh, there you go. Well, we're going to be back tomorrow, Rob, and we come back every day. Yeah, tomorrow. we do come back. <laughs> and tomorrow you're going to love it. For those of you who are um, waiting for this bit, it happens tomorrow. Three sex toy innovators will pitch their ideas to a panel of experts in. Get ready for this. Sex toy tycoon. Are we going to find the next sex toy tycoon? Yes. <laughs> we'll wow, do that tomorrow wait. on Sex Toy Tycoon. 
And Wednesday, Courtney Cox will be with us. We will. Boy, am uh, I enjoying that TV show that she's in? You know, I love a good scary movie or a scary TV show. They've done such a good job with this one. There you go. Well, I'm going to see her in the flesh. All right. We'll be back tomorrow, Robin.